Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out. Anyway, let's dive into this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to the Vin and Ali show. This is our first one, our first podcast for 2022. Mm -hmm. Wow. Excited. It's been too yeah, long. Too, actually. It's, it has been a while since our last one. Mm -hmm. And in this podcast, we're going to be speaking about extreme ownership. And it was written by two Navy SEALs. And thanks for holding the book up there, Ali. <laughs> uh, it's Jocko Willink and Leif Barbin. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a cool book because to me, it's very straightforward. The, the entire layout of the book is pretty much a war story, a principle, and then application. A war story, principle, and then the application, which was cool. It was like you get to watch little mini war movies in between learning some pretty cool lessons. And and I think both the SEALs did a great job of applying the lessons into kind of a business context, which is pretty cool. Yep, for sure. What it's did you cool think? how they've got. Yeah, yeah uh, I think the structure really stood out for me. It, it feels like if we were to write a book, I think we'd probably do something similar like this because I know you love your storytelling. Uh, I like trying to find the principle probably more so. And I think one of the things that they did really well was how – they showcase the examples with the war story, but then they also showed it in a corporate yeah. setting as well, because obviously do some corporate consulting post their army career, which again, provides a broader perspective, which is really cool. And it just shows you how high performing teams doesn't really matter what arena you're playing in. The, the core principles probably still translate. And this is just one method of leading and implementing some of these lessons. Yeah, and, and I feel that it, it, the reason I love the book so much as well is because you and I always use the analogy of war, or maybe I use it more than you every time it comes you, you, to you love it. <laughs> yeah, I do love it. I do love it. No experience in combat or anything whatsoever, no. but I just I love the analogy of it and, and the analogy yeah. that, again, you know, if you haven't watched any of our other podcasts, mm. and you, you really should, it's uh, I love the analogy that for myself, I look at myself as being more of a soldier I execute on strategies and I'm, I'm not that great at strategy. Whereas for yourself, I, you know, I always look at you kind of being the general figure, very good at strategy, but you, you don't often get into the weeds of the execution yourself. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we talk about business strategy, we kind of use that framing of, of war and whatnot. So I, I really liked reading that book, this book with, with that frame in mind. Yep. Is, is this the first time you've read this book? Well, this is the first time I've read it properly. I think the yeah, the other time when I read it, it wasn't. I didn't read it with that much excitement. I was like, "Oh no, here's another leadership book I got to read." But this time I read it with a bit more excitement because I knew we we're going to talk about it. And and yeah, yeah. So, all right, cool. Well, I'm excited to dig into it because I had a look at my notes when I read this the first time in 2018, and this is one of those books when I look back on it, I'm like, "Wow, this shaped." a fair bit of the approach that I used probably over the last four years. And then it was a really good reminder as well of some of the areas where I'm like, oh, I could probably refresh on some of these skills. So very excited to jump into this one and see if we can share some cool takeaways for the listeners. 
All right. Let's well, I guess it. we should just start with kind of that that first lesson in the book. You know, it throws you immediately into this this mission that Jocker was a part of. <laughs> and, and again, I just I, I I I've always loved war movies. I never mm-hmm. realized how exciting even a war book could be <laughs> because while I was reading it, it was just it was I just it was a page turner, man. It was mm-hmm. really good. But the first what's one, your favorite? What's your favorite war movie? Black Hawk Down. Ooh, good one. Very oh, good. it's just, it's so jam-packed with action. I'm mm. pretty sure I've seen that movie more than 10 times. Mm. I have to add a second because they kind of share first place. It would have to be 13 yeah. Soldiers uh, of Benghazi. 13 Hours oh, okay. Benghazi. Benghazi. Okay, I haven't watched that one. I, I watched what Band of Brothers. Uh, probably oh, not a movie. Nice. Band of Brothers, the TV series. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Watched that during lockdown. Okay. Brilliant. Cool. All right, jump well, in. The first lesson was, okay, so there was this massive battle and without going into all the details, you should definitely read about it. It was fantastic. But the first story of the book was where there was a lot of friendly fire that occurred, which is really frowned upon in the army. And basically there were a lot of reasons why this friendly fire happened. But then ultimately at the end of it, Jocko realized, one of the seals, that one of the authors, he realized that, well, you know, I remember this really dramatic moment in the book where he says, look, whose fault is it? What, why did this friendly fire happen? And then one of the soldiers stood up and said, oh, I, th- I think it's probably me because I didn't, I didn't communicate our location to the rest of the team. And then he goes, no, it's not your fault. And then another person raises their hand and says, oh, it's probably my fault because I, I didn't have the equipment that was required to be able to communicate the, the team's location. And he goes, no, it's not your fault. And a series of other soldiers stood up and kind of took ownership of, of it. And, and in the end, Jocker just said no to all of them. And he said, the person who has all the fault is me. And he took all of the fault, even though it technically wasn't all of his fault. It was a random series of situations that led to that. He accepted all fault being the leader of that group. And the lesson at the end of that, again, I think quite apparent, is take full ownership when things fail. It's never the team's fault. It's always your fault if you're the leader. The first time I read that a few years ago, I really didn't like it. <laughs> I, I, I got to say, I immediately went to the, nah, man, come on. It can't always be my fault, right? I mean, seriously. It's always Craig's fault. Yeah, yeah it's Craig's videographer. Surely, I mean, that's kind of the philosophy I've gone with my whole life. <laughs> It's true. Because, I, 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 again, the first time I read it, I think being a little bit younger as well, and mm. and I, I don't know, I just it didn't sit well with me. But I have to mm. say this time reading it again, having been through some extremely difficult situations in business during the pandemic and having acted differently during those challenges has really made me value this lesson and agree more with this lesson. Yeah. I remember when I first read that and I'm like, yeah, I fully agree with this. I was working in an organization where it was quite probably more, there was parts of it that were more of a blame focused organization. That was just kind of the culture you know, where mm. it's quite political. People pass the blame down to different areas of the business and the organization. So I went out and I'm like, I read this and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to test this theory out and just put it out there and take some ownership for things and see if we can open up that dialogue with the team. And I remember the first time that I did it just because, and the book speaks about this and we'll jump into this too about ego. 
like I put out there, tried a bit of vulnerability, said that, you know, I think these this is an area that we're not really performing in. You know, I'll take responsibility for it. I think it's ultimately my fault, even though I was probably middle of the chain at that point. And they were like, yeah, you're right. It is your fault. Um, <laughs> That was that's the, that's not how the story in the book went. In the book, that's exactly- heroic music started playing, and all the soldiers started taking their hats off and holding it to their hearts and going, "Wow, what a glorious, amazing leader!" Oh, that's right. And then they're like, "Yeah, you're right. It is your fault. So maybe you could do a bit better next time around." And when you report Whoa. to us at the next meeting, at least now we know oh, the areas that you've had. but. But then I realized that, okay, I'm still going to pursue with that lesson and notion. And then we had a few more open discussions and that was ultimately it. Even the leaders above it were like, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, all of us are probably not really succeeding for these reasons. And then they started taking a bit more ownership. But yeah, I remember the first time putting it out there. It didn't really play out exactly how I hoped. But then after seeing it work and pushing forward with that approach of still the openness it still made the team ultimately better so that was just one a funny little story when you read a book sometimes and you go out and you try mm. to execute it that it can backfire initially but again the only reason it did backfire wasn't because of the actual business objectives or trying to perform it only backfired because the egos within that team probably still weren't ready for it and that ultimately yeah, it, did come around it's so interesting because when you when you accept fault, it's like that's the only way to move forward. Yeah, you know it, it, the classic one I think of is when when I was younger and I was trying to build my keynote speaking career, and I had written a talk and nobody, like again, I just I didn't really get booked for any other talks once I did the first one, and I I started blaming everybody else for not being able to see my brilliance. <laughs> You know, I, I was blaming them for not being able to see. Don't you see how amazing it is that I connected a personal development yeah. point to magic? You have no idea how amazing that is. And to me, yeah. the, the the more you keep blaming other people, the more you stop mm. and improve. Because I think it's it's kind of that cliche of once you blame others, you give away all of your power, right? Mm. You, you give away all of the responsibility to improve. Like, well, there's no need to improve because it's not my fault. But yeah. then the moment you accept fault, and again, part of like, there's about 15% of me, 20% of me that still feels, look, even if it's not your fault, it's actually beneficial to t- accept fault. Yeah. Right. Because then it actually makes you push yourself to be better. Yeah. And the alternative is it's not my fault. Therefore, I don't need to do anything. Well, I think that first concept of just extreme ownership, what it does is it opens up a much better channel of communication call it because when if you look at teams that really do struggle or relationships that struggle generally it's because of defense and diminishing or avoiding some of the tougher conversations the truth and that's a pretty natural tendency because we all want to protect call it our egos or identity or whatever it is and I haven't seen many people that don't do this, you know, myself included where at some point, even though you think you're practicing it, you're still probably not practicing it at that level of true openness and vulnerability or transparency as you'd want to. But I think any move towards that direction, even though it's a little bit more difficult, generally leads to some progress. Whereas what you were saying before, when you blame someone or something, there just isn't any real benefit, material benefit. Like the best case scenario of you blaming someone or having that 
combative interaction with them is <laughs> you might feel a little bit better about yourself momentarily. Like, oh, yeah, I won that argument. But it still doesn't really win in the greatest scheme of things, I don't believe. Why do you think we blame? Is it just to get that momentary relief? Do you think there's any – is there a reason greater than yeah. just that? Or are there other reasons? I think it's to exert control. And especially if you're in a position of power, if you go and blame someone, there's probably two real – it's probably like maybe the equivalent of getting high. You get a momentary dopamine hit of feeling like, ha, 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 I'm so good. It's like when you write that angry email. Um, usually when you send it, after you send it, there's that regret like, oh, crap, I probably could have waited a little bit. And then you hear those stories of people that write the email and then they just delete it or they try to delete it and then still accidentally send it at some point in the future. But <laughs> I think that's the that's maybe why people do it. It's like it's an emotional reaction, usually under stress or if you're feeling threatened, you blame someone else. It maybe absolves you from the responsibility and really having to look at it clearly. And then, yeah. In some cases, it might improve performance in a very short-term measure. Like that person might be like, oh, yeah, okay, I did the wrong thing and I'll improve it. But I think if it's done from a place of just pure blame, I don't think mm. it's effective. But, yeah, it's quite a natural thing though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think to the times when I've blamed others. Why am I actually blaming them? And I think for the reasons you've said, yep, I, I agree with them. The one that I think that you didn't mention that I think about when I do it mm. is when I'm afraid of failure. So I'm afraid mm. others see me as the one that failed and I, I don't want to be the failure. So then I blame others. So that is, and no, I didn't fail. They failed. Right? It wasn't them. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't let this poor performance tarnish my yeah. pristine record. I tarnish this <laughs> because it's like, it's, it's like, I think lawyers might connect with this in that, lawyers and I think even surgeons maybe where they have to protect that record. You know, the surgeons only X number of people have died on the table when I've operated. And, and if, it, if someone did die, then if they can shift that blame, they can keep that record nice and clean because that record then leads to future promotions yeah. and progress in career, et cetera. So I, I feel like there's a, there's, I don't want it to tarnish my reputation. I don't want it to, tarnish the way people perceive me because I failed. You know, there's, it's pretty complex. There's a lot of reasons why we blame. Yeah. And, and it seems that if you never accept blame, what's the negatives of that? <laughs> besides from, <laughs> besides from not improving, right? I think that's a yeah. big one. You, you never improve because yeah. again, because you blame and then you never improve. What, yeah. what else are some deadly, deadly cons of not, not a, taking extreme ownership, do you think? Yeah, you're right, though. Like, maybe on the flip side of it, <laughs> absolving yourself from all responsibility can be quite peaceful. <laughs> because if you can do it, <laughs> if you can do it at the ultimate level, just as you were saying that, I'm like, yeah, I think he's right. Like, why have we been? <laughs> we'll, write a, we'll write a new book called No Ownership or yeah, Extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Extreme. Just- Ownerless shit. <laughs> <laughs> just unaccountability. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah, beauty yeah. of just navigating. Well, you no, know, the book should uh, just be called It's Not My Fault. 
like without getting political here, like I'd say that Donald Trump is an amazing example of somebody that I just don't think would ever apologize or feel like he's ever made a mistake. You know, like that kind of mindset. And in saying that, it in ways worked for him. Right. So look, like there's (laughs) maybe you've hit on something really incredible here. Like this is the big takeaway is that it's, it's the opposite of this book. It's extreme, not ownership. (laughs) One of the things I really wanted to do this year as Mm. we do more podcasts is I I just wanted to stress test the lessons a little more, (laughs) right? Because it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of just agreeing and completely drinking the Kool-Aid yeah, but but also just not kind of testing it, taking it out, throwing it on the ground, dropping it from level two, and just seeing if it breaks. And and to me, I, I just immediately thought of that surgeon example because that's real. Well, as far as I think it's real because I watch Scrubs, you know, a, a comedy, yeah. medical TV that's, show. But it, but it seems as if yeah. Well, I I feel like it is. <laughs> it, it just seems like in some professions. If they took, let's say, for example, you're a surgeon, a person died on the table, clearly possibly wasn't your fault, most likely wasn't your fault. But you're like, no, it was me. Again, I think that is super admirable. No question about it. That is so admirable. You're probably going to make that team member who failed feel looked after. And as a result, they're going to trust, you know, you're raising the standards of the team. Everyone's going to love the leader. And then as a result, do better as a result of that. But within the system that potentially a lot of medical professionals work in, you would be marked down, potentially. Or, or if you're a lawyer that loses cases all the time, then you'll be less desirable in the market, even though you're probably really good at what you do now. I don't know. Or, or is it, or is it you, you temporarily have a decrease by taking more ownership because, you know, the nature of what you're doing. But then after that, the team significantly improves as a result of you taking complete ownership. Error is completely minimized. So you see an initial dip, but then a consistent increase in performance afterwards. Yep. As you were saying that, the thing that came to my mind is it's nearly like we're joking around here, but I think it's nearly the equivalent of saying that if you just keep lying, you can benefit. And you might be able to keep progressing. Like there is a benefit in say lying, right? Like if you get caught doing something and you lie, you might get away with it once or twice. But I think that there's also a cost to these things. And even when you're talking about those professions, like in the medical profession or in the legal profession, I was thinking about politics as well then. I think at Mm. some point, maybe just at its real core fundamentals, people can see through the bullshit. Right, yeah. like even when you see a politician coming up and they're just speaking, you know, the rhetoric around just avoiding the core issue. Like mm. people will listen to that and be like, "Oh, that person's a great communicator," but they haven't actually told us anything that's real here. And we get that feeling, and then it probably decreases in trust. Right? It's probably the same with a medical profession. Like if they're doing, if if they're implementing dangerous practices that are risking the lives of their patients, and they just keep sort of sidestepping that. I think at some point that medical profession is going to get called out if the system is still solid. So I, I think it also depends on how the structure of the system rewards you, right? And I think maybe in some of those structures, not being fully open and transparent or taking extreme ownership, you maybe are rewarded somewhat for those types of behaviours. Whereas I think the Army and the Navy is maybe a great example or like maybe sports as well 
where you can sit there and you could try to BS the system and maybe not take ownership, but your performance is pretty clear and visible for a lot of people to see. So in those types of environments, I feel like extreme ownership is probably the best option if you're looking genuinely at performance because the more open and honest and truthful you are with the current situation, the strategy, what your objectives are, the performance of team members, everyone's skills and abilities. At least that way, everyone can clearly see the chessboard caller and then you can make better moves. Whereas if you have to then also go through the additional layer of politics, who's hiding this, who's not being honest, it gets murky and I think it just slows down the progress. So that's probably the genuine cost. And I think even in a performance industry, right, like you could sit there and just blame everyone else, like you said about your keynote. But knowing you, I know that's not really your style. Like I don't think you're somebody that tries to remove responsibility or not accept that. But if you are a performer like that, and I'm pretty sure in your industry, there'd be a lot of performers out there that have that mindset of I've got this great keynote, but people just aren't booking me because they're dumb and they don't really understand what I'm talking about, probably can guarantee their results and their performance doesn't really equate with where they think it should be just because they're not really taking that ownership. Whereas, as you said, you might have started out your career being like, you guys just don't understand this, but you didn't just blame everyone else. And you're like, oh, well, I'll just keep doing the exact same thing and let's see what happens. Knowing you, you would have just kept reiterating it, trying different moves and then getting people to then, yeah, accept and enjoy what you're putting out there. Well, I did that initially. I blamed others initially because I, I wasn't good at dealing with failure. I didn't know how to accept failure. And because I didn't realize the value of failure, I didn't know how to fail gracefully. That's what created that knee-jerk reaction. Whereas, you know, you're right. After kind of accepting that and then you sit there and you go, well, well, nothing's going to change. Like, do, do I just wait for someone to see my value or do I go out there and improve, right? But, but the thing you said on performance, which was really interesting, and it's that what's made it very clear to me now is that extreme ownership may temporarily cause a slight dip in performance. Again, I'm just looking at that that mm. that surgeon model, right? It's like mm. you taking ownership might just might temporarily affect your 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 perception or the way others see you. It may just it may just slightly do that for a bit, but then gradually you will win. I don't even think it's but why do you think there's a temporary dip in the performance? Well, because of the the, the market view of that person now having failed more. It's like if you were gonna pick a surgeon yeah. and then because this surgeon took more responsibility that month mm. and as a result, 10 more people passed away. Yeah. But that surgeon's ultimately the one that accepted extreme mm. ownership. You know, very little people are gonna die potentially after that. But because of that momentary snapshot of the way I view their performance, mm. I'm going to go with a guy that blamed other people who's only got one death under him that month. So this is not to do with team performance. Mm. This is more to do with market perception. Because it's like there I is stress, a negative. I want to stress test that thinking though too. Because my yeah. guess is that the one that's hiding behind the truth probably won't have less deaths in that analogy. Like I actually think your stats will be flipped around the other side. I think the one that is more open has better communication with their team members understands and is more self-reflective and taking responsibility for their moves. 
you'd assume that ultimately their performance would be a little bit better because you can't like in that game, you can't really hide behind it. Like if you're doing something that ends up killing someone, it's going to be pretty clear. Like you can't just do a sales pitch and be like, Hey, I'm the best surgeon. But then the reality is that all your patients are dying. Like as good as your PR (laughs) is on that, it's going to get called out. Well, it's so, this. The way that they go into surgeries without killing anyone is they pick mm. only surgeries that have high chances of success. Mm. Yeah, they yeah. avoid all of the ones that are difficult. <laughs> and also, you know, again, it, it's just, again, yeah. we get into the politics of how the medical yeah. system works based on yeah. a TV show that I watch. Yeah. But it's, I, I, I really think that there is a yeah. negative to it when you're in, because let's say, for example, as a thought leader, Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, I really wanted to improve and then I took responsibility for a whole bunch of terrible things that have happened, which weren't necessary. Again, it was partly my fault, but weren't completely yeah. my fault. But I took ownership for all of it. Yeah. Then there's going to be a temporary negative view on you as a thought leader in the marketplace, just temporary, mm-hmm. as you get better thereafter. I don't know. I just I feel like it's you can't avoid that. Yeah. It's like, it's like you, when you told the people in the university that, hey, guys, it's actually my fault. They're like, actually, Ali, yeah, you've been doing pretty yeah. bad. <laughs> it's kind of, there was that moment of negative view, but then right afterwards they go, yo, actually, it's not just you, it's us too. But there's that momentary negative perception. Yep. And I think even with that example is when you start getting clear about the situation and what's going on, mm. because- even now when I, I'm, it was a long time ago, so I'm trying to think back on how that one played out and how we ended up moving more forward on that. And there was also credit to a couple of the other leaders there that then were like, okay, well, this is the reality of the situation. We've been, we have dropped the ball for, call it five to 10 years in this area. But I think one of the things that I had to do in that environment was it was either going to be the end of that journey at that point in time, or we had to clearly put it out there. And knowing call it the hierarchy, if I'd have actually called it out exactly how it was without me just taking that responsibility, the progress wouldn't have happened and it would have been the end point for me in that situation anyway. So Mm. I think it's also evaluating the situation that you're in and then knowing that, okay, for me to progress or my team to progress or the organization to progress, am I the person that can go out there and communicate this, put it out on the table, maybe take that short-term hit, as you Mm. said, but at least that way it's laid out and then people can make that decision. And I think what everyone in that situation realized was that, all right, here's the reality. The performance has been dipping. The stats aren't really lying. We've probably all made decisions now that have resulted into this situation. There's a really great opportunity here. And then we have a plan moving forward that can then execute on some of those results. And then once people started seeing that, okay, well, if we do make a few of these moves and now that we know exactly what's happening, um, we can move forward, that there's a really good chance for success, then you, you end up getting that buy-in as well. So I think it might even be the same that if you are reading this book and you're looking at executing some of these lessons is there is one part where you have to take responsibility, especially if there isn't performance. But then I think it's also being clear around what exactly it is that you are taking responsibility for. That's probably the thing that I missed at the beginning the first time I tried that is it was essentially me just coming out being like, Hey, this is crap. I think it's my fault without actually providing enough of that context. But then the second, third times that I did that, it was more well-documented. It's like, all right, well, here are the stats. Here are the things that, you know, 
in that instance I was saying that we've done wrong over a period of time. This is what I think that we can do. What's everyone else's thoughts here? How can we then improve the team, make some of these moves, get some resources for this? And then you kind of go into that planning situation. But a big part of that is, I think, just the initial ownership, which is nearly just outlining the current state as truly as you can. Like that's ultimately what that first step really feels like generally when significant change is required. And I think it's going to, like you mentioned there too, it's going to initially hurt a little bit. And I think people have to be aware of that. It's not, it's Mm. not as heroic as it, you know, the examples I think made it out to be because I've seen situations like this too from friends Mm. that, you know, they take ownership thinking it's the noble thing to do. And then guess who got fired? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's, it's, that does happen. And I think yeah. you wouldn't want to be in that environment anyway, if that's something yeah. that happened. You, you should be glad you got fired because that's again, that's a very toxic environment. It's just to me, it's a, a, I feel like it's acknowledging that, that two steps back before we take the 20 steps forward. This is a few steps back momentarily, but you oh. create momentum for forward movement. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not, a, it's not a clear trajectory of you know, zero to 100. You kind of go zero minus 10 and then you go to 100. It's like a slingshot. You've got to pull back before you create some momentum, right? And and it's you know, the book didn't really talk about that. And I thought, oh, okay, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like what there you said there. Component. That if you do go down this path and it ends up negatively backfiring on you, call it, it's probably for the best that that happened. Yeah. Especially if you do that's align right. with that approach. Like if you want to work in an environment that is about, say, call it high performance and progress and really being open and transparent being able to communicate with your leaders and you try something like this and you end up getting fired for the betterment of the organization. That's, I think a real benefit. You, you cop some good luck. Hmm. I mean, this lesson then immediately leads into the next. And then I'd love to hear Hmm. a couple from you too, but it, it led straight into the next of where Essentially, the point of wisdom here is that there are no bad teams. There are only Mm. bad leaders. And there was this great story in the book where Marines had to be in groups of, I think, were five, and they had to carry these boats. So you got to get under these plastic boats and you got to carry them. And and there was team, for simplicity's sake, there was two teams and team A was just always winning and team B was the last of the pack. So what the, the, the pretty much the leaders decided to do was they said, all right, we're going to switch the leaders from team A, the winner team. We're going to switch that leader into the loser team and then take the loser's leader and switch them over to the, the winner's team. So they, they mixed up the teams like that, just the leaders, only changing the leaders, just to see what would happen. And you know, through the suspense of the storytelling, I was like, oh, surely the team A would still win because you still got you know, the majority of the A players over there. But no, in the end, team B won. And the only person that changed in Team B was the leader. And, and then it kind of led to the lesson there of, well, look, there's no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think you can have a bit of both. <laughs> One of the notes that I wrote just in that section was, I, I agree. I think generally if you have an amazing leader within a unit, your odds of success are going to be significantly higher. Um, I think in that example, what they also saw was I think team A, even without the leader, still did pretty good. 
because they had a pretty decent team. I think they were still coming second. They weren't winning. Yeah. So the, the yeah. leader of the new team did well. So it was still around the mark. So I think a uh, decent team can work. The, the other thing that I made a note of is, uh, and I was jamming on this a little bit, but I think when you look at really high-performing teams, one bit that's sometimes maybe underrated is just the power of the superstar as well. Mm. Like you can have an amazing basketball team, but then if you have that one person that's like that Michael Jordan or that LeBron James or the Steph Curry, you know, Kobe, their impact just seems to always be very significant. And they've got that combination of both being a leader and being able to execute. And generally they bring the others on there. Now, sometimes they're not really leaders in the traditional sense of like being the motivational, you know, strategist or getting everyone up around them up and about like Jordan, for example, used to berate his teammates and that was his way of getting it there. Steph Curry is completely quiet and humble and just kind of leads through humility nearly and being a team player. So I think everyone's got their different styles, but I think that, concept off the superstar is sometimes underrated. And even just from teams that I've been involved with, there's usually, say if it's a team of eight or nine, there's usually one or two people, you know, 80, 20 rule that end up probably having the vast majority of that impact, obviously with the support of the wider team as well. But yeah, it's just, it was just one of the things that I was reflecting on in that. And hence why I've always loved really having pretty small teams where you try to jam them with stars if you can. Do you feel that are generally the star, because I don't know anything about basketball, but generally are the stars in basketball teams, are they generally the the leaders as well? Or would you say, again, it's the the coach is the leader? I mean, or is the player the leader? I think with, say, basketball, for example – it seems like the the best player is often the leader. But okay. then the, there's, there's probably cases where the there's a lot of – Yeah, the coach is usually a pretty big part of it. The general manager, like that's quite a big – Okay. But there's obviously a lot that goes into the performance in those really competitive environments. Just going back to the players though, like the one that I could probably think of that maybe isn't counted as a bit of a leader would say Kevin Durant who's arguably one of the best one number one or number two player, but I don't know if he's maybe viewed as a leader as much mm-hmm. in the space. Again, there'd probably be people out there with more basketball knowledge that would know. Mm-hmm. So, but then in a good environment and a good team, like when he played with the golden state warriors ended up winning three championships and he was able to highlight his ability as one of the best players in the world in a very high performing organization. Mm-hmm. And, high-performing team. So, yeah, it's it's interesting just that line that there's no, yeah, no bad teams, only bad leaders. But- well, it's, it's the classic story of the Mighty Ducks, right? It's yeah. the Mighty Ducks of this terrible team gets a great coach. He comes in and until – and that, that movie is literally kind of part of this lesson of this book. Until he kind of took ownership of, no, he had to improve. He had to grow – only it's then also the, the best team- movie of all time. Oh, far out. I watched that so many times when I was young. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But it's, 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 again, I think that's a great example of someone who took a bad team and with great leadership was able to bring out everybody's talents. And it's, it's just, again, looking at, and, and not to be 
a downer, but it's like when you look at it from a really pragmatic sense, like I wonder if a great leader with a shitty team can beat an average team with an average leader. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm really curious because again, the only example we got was the one that Jocko explained about being in the seals and carrying the boats. I just, I just really wonder because yeah, I'm, I'm curious because let's say you've got an average lead but a great team versus a great leader but a crappy team. Mm. It would be really interesting to see more of these examples. And, and I'm trying to think of examples where the crappy leader but a great team won. Mm. You know, and, and yeah. I think the only reason that would happen is if there is another leader within that team that is just unknown, right, that is just not being, being highlighted. You know, there is still a great leader there. It's just that they aren't acknowledged as the leader on the team, but they're just taking that responsibility and going, you know what? The leaders, like the, the manager's an asshole. I'm going to take leader of this team and we're going to win regardless. We don't need him. And then generally what happens is then that shitty leader just takes credit for it anyway. Yeah. Right? And that's when you get the shit leader, great team. Is really, there yeah. is a great leader within there somewhere. You just don't see them. Yeah. And just as you were saying that, I think this is a this is one of those ones where there's so many different ways to get to the end point. That's why it's really hard to have definitive answers. Yeah. It's a big blanket blanket statement. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit like even the entrepreneurship one where people are like, you know, the best idea with poor execution still ends up somewhere near the bottom. Whereas a very average idea with amazing execution can still have a chance at success. Right. right? So when you were saying, this like I think it can you know let's go with our open mindedness and we'll call it it's a bit of everything. No, I think <laughs> Again, is. not answering, yeah. but I think a really bad leader can very negatively impact the potential of oh, a very good team, right? Absolutely. Like that's one that's categoric. If they're not, because even if if I'm well, thinking about leave. the role, well, well, even this we should define our role of leader mm. in terms of what we believe it is. Yeah, so for me the way that I kind of align with leadership, it's probably not as conventional, but I think the leader generally outlines maybe the vision. They outline the strategy or the core, you know, the custodian of the strategy. They try to impact, call it the culture and the expectations, the values and norms within the team. They set maybe some of the objectives, the, the key indicators, they manage those. And then a lot of it's probably around communicating the focus, telling the story, allocating resources. Like it's maybe that there's obviously like, there's so many different facets that can be involved with leadership. Whereas I'm a relatively hands-off leader, Mm. right? Like I like setting the table and then having people operate within that ecosystem. And then ideally having the, the players within that team become leaders in their own right. So there's, there's call it, a relatively broad spectrum of boundaries, mm. but within that system, there's essentially a lot of freedom to then operate. And then every now and again, it's correction. So my style is like, I can go really micro at some points for a very small period of time where I'll be, you know, looking at heaps of the detailed stuff to see if I can see any patterns or things that are maybe going to have a longer term impact if we keep, pursuing those because I think you can't that can happen where you just keep compounding smaller things and then 
you look back in two years time and you just see that you're so far off the destination that you wanted to go to. Um, but then I'll also have periods of times where it's nearly non-communicative. It's just team. You just go and do, do your thing and let's, let's have a chat when needed. So that way I think it allows for some growth as well. And the team to then also be able to explore their skills and abilities Um yeah, in their own time and to have the chance to also fail and try a few things and develop. To me, that's the ideal framework, but that wouldn't work for everyone because some teams need more day-to-day management. Some teams yeah. need a lot more development. They need more nurturing. So uh, you just made me it's... think that you just made me think that if the Mighty Ducks got you as the leader, you just leave them to be and just go, you guys sort this out. <laughs> you guys, I know you guys have got it in you to be amazing ice hockey players. You, you're 10 years yeah. old. Yeah, you've got this. I, you've got this. I'll just set out the strategy. I'm like, look, by the end, in 90 minutes, by the end of this movie, I really hope that you win the District 5 championships. Um, and then we can sing We Are the Champion together around then, the bottom and then, and then we'll <laughs> sing We Are the Champion. And I'll see you there. I'll see and you I'll all see, there. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you guys at the end of the movie. Um <laughs> And in an ideal world, I think that's how we sometimes would want it to work. Well, Obviously, well, that's how, that's, you still that's how you can work. No, that's how yeah. you can work when you've got A players. Yeah. When you've got those star players, you because to lead different types of caliber individuals requires a different form of leadership, right? It's it's while you were sharing your thoughts on leadership, it just made me think of the leadership that I really starved when I was young was more of a student master relationship. Mm. I wanted someone to show me the ropes, yeah, you know. And then once I have the ropes, then I don't need you to micromanage me after that because it seems like there's a there's an evolution in my growth as a professional, as a student, how, whichever metaphor you want to go with. But it just I feel like you have to almost determine where this person's at and then your leadership style needs to change with it as well. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because with some A players, maybe you need to let them take responsibility and ownership as well. Yeah. Whereas if they're too new in the game and they're too rookie and then you, you throw, you throw the blame on them, then that would crush them. I think at some levels when it's truthful and it's not dishonest, but you're like, Hey, I think this is where you, you drop the ball a little and this is where you could actually improve, but it's for the betterment of the team. It's not just, you're not just blaming them negatively. So, I mean, it's interesting in hearing you share that one perspective of leadership. Yeah. And while you were saying it made me think of the other perspective as well is this is more, uh, yeah. Nurturing is a more nurturing. Mm. And then one is more strategic and direction and vision based. For sure. And I'd say that's probably, if I looked at my own assessment, that's exactly it. Like I've got much more, I lean towards an A player type of leadership style. Mm. And even historically, (laughs) if I look back over my career over the last 10, 15 years, like if it was, Mm. I wasn't great at getting D players to a B. Yeah. Yeah, It wasn't, it wasn't really my skill set, but I would generally just align with, that small group of call it A players or B players that could become an A player. And then if I could see the potential for impact, then I would invest a lot of time and energy and resource um, into nurturing that relationship, which- I think that distinction is really important. Yeah. And it has its downfalls for sure, especially- Oh, yeah. Well, for me, it limits me that I can only really work with 
relatively small teams with that style. Mm. And it's very key person dependent. So if you lose, <laughs> if that key person gets sick or that relationship <laughs> fractures, it can have quite a significant impact on the overall scheme of things. Um, and, and or again, because hard. when you play with A players and you lose Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan yeah. was the reason you're winning, then all of a sudden you've jeopardized your your mission. For sure. Like, mm. and, and that's probably also the reality with a lot of high performing teams is, or even with business opportunities is like, even if you look at the Chicago Bulls, like they had Michael Jordan for that period of time, but they lost him and yeah. they've still never really rebuilt. So, mm. so finding A plays is extremely hard. Nurturing them and getting the best of their performance is also extremely hard. Keeping um, them. Keeping them is hard, but then it's also, I think, the importance of making sure that everyone else on the roster is locked in and clear and playing their roles as well. It's such an interesting topic because I don't really have a big team. I've just got a few people on my team, my manager, my agents, and then Craig, who who works with me in, in the tech, helps me with all my tech and videography and video editing. So it's it's fascinating when when you look you read the examples of the bigger organizations how complex it actually is and and it's just I mean another point that I remember in the book I know this is kind of a later point but just bringing it forward it's that it's it's almost impossible to manage more than six people you know it's it's yeah. teams of five tend to be you know even what the yeah. guys in the seals say that that's optimal you know Six to ten yeah yeah, you know, six to ten, they're saying is not really manageable. They're saying less than that. I thought maybe I read it different. I thought they said six to ten was ideal. No, it's just human beings no are not capable of managing more than six to ten. There you go. And teams yeah. of four to five work seem to be four to five are ideal. Best. Yep. Yeah. I think Jeff Bezos had the same thing at Amazon where every meeting they had like the one pizza rule or two pizza rules or something where if if you can't, if like one pizza won't feed the entire team, you've probably got too <laughs> many cool. people in that meeting. So mm. it makes sense. I think, wow. you, and and that's probably quite logical. Like if you think about managing more than say six people, all the other variables, all the different personality types, all the information can become a little bit overwhelming. Like are you getting in that depth or that focus as much as you need to? I learned a really valuable lesson in hearing you just talk about this just now. And it's that you've got to apply the right leadership strategy to the person where they currently are. Mm. Because if I immediately took that role of, you know, I, again, if I, if I applied my style of leadership, which I have a, I have a fairly nurturing style of leadership. If I did that with an A player, it'd drive them insane. Because they'll look at it as micromanagement. But for me, it's almost like, a, hey, I, I want to help you learn the ropes. So I think I'm more used to working with people who are from a D moving them to a B. Yep. Right. And I think it's the nature of my work because I teach, mm. you know, I teach communication yeah. skills. People normally come to me because they're not very good at it. So I'm so used to dealing with people who are, you know, beginners of something and then taking them from beginner to like, you know, yeah, like, like you said, a D to like a B or, or B plus. And because of that, I, I, I get trapped into that style of leadership. Whereas the trap for you might be that you're so used to working with A players that when you meet somebody who's a D, you just go, oh, this is, you know, you're no good. Or, or, but again, it's, it's, it's two different styles of leadership for two yeah. different types of people at two different places. 
for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think my like my difference if you're thinking about that nurturing style is I'm always drawn to seeing raw potential. Mm, like, that's yeah. probably the big thing that I love seeing is like, like especially people that I know that are in structures. So maybe they're working for an organization where they can't flourish or no one's really seeing their true abilities. But deep down, you have that gut feel that he is an A player that could be unlocked and unleashed. And I want to provide them with that environment. So that's probably been my trend is trying to pluck people that have that A player potential, but are maybe in a structure or yeah, system organization that only allows them to get to a C where they can't really unleash. So so that frustrated, talented player out there is somebody that I love unearthing and finding and putting into our system because that's what it's kind of set up for, I think, because the whole thing is around you prove yourself, you mm-hmm. take responsibility, you execute, and then if you keep doing that, then there's generally progression within there. But in and saying if you that, take- though, like, yeah, sorry. Well, what I was just going to say was, and if you take full full ownership of yourself, for example, and you're in a career where you feel like I'm not really progressing, yeah. then you just have to ask yourself, are you putting yourself in the right environment as well? That's right. Yeah. I, I, do, do you have the, the right type of environment that's bringing out the best in you? And really mm-hmm. taking ownership is hard here because you have to acknowledge, okay, right now where I am, am I really an A player or am I actually a D player or am I a C or B player? And I think it, it will be so hard to take ownership if you had to accept that you were a D player, yeah. especially if you were playing this game for a while. It, it's like it's super hard for me to accept right now that I've been doing archery for six months, but I would probably still say I'm a D player. Mm. Like I'm, I'm not, again, if you look at the greatest, I, I can't, I, D, yeah. it's for sure, but it's super hard to acknowledge that. Cool. And, and, if, and, if I, and if I put myself now into the presence of a leader who isn't good at taking D's to B's mm. and are only good at taking B's to A's, then I put myself in the wrong environment. Yeah. I love yeah. what you just said then because I think my fundamental belief is that every single person is an A player at something. Mm. But are they, call it with their vocation or their work, have mm. they actually aligned themselves with the profession or the business or the organization where they genuinely can execute on that thing that they're an A player at. So as you were saying there, the thing that stood out is, yeah, you love archery, but that's not going to become your profession. So it's okay to be a D player at that. Whereas Mm. I think a lot of people coast through life because they were told as a kid that, oh, you need to go be an accountant or you need to go be a doctor. And maybe it's not aligned with them that that is their thing that they really want to be an A player at. So maybe Mm. they are a C or D play because they're doing something that they've kind of just been put into or Mm. shoved into. Whereas that's the tricky thing I think in life is aligning both yourself and being truly honest about what you really are an A player at. And then also finding that environment or that ecosystem where you can go out and be an A player. And that's the bit that I think very few people get to experience. And when you see that mixture, it's a beautiful thing, but it's rare. It's like winning the lotto, I think. Like I think it is because I, I, yeah. how if you're in that position where you are a D player or are a C player and you feel like it's because you're not in the right career path or the right profession, mm. what can they do? Because yeah. now that you've brought that up, I mean, what do you do? 
yeah, I think it's having a really, like what you said there, a really honest mm. assessment of like one of the things that, you know, I love bits of paper and just as you were saying that is I'll just do a quick analysis and maybe mm. you'd have two columns. So you'd have, you know, Vin or Ali put your name on one column and then be like, okay, based on my skill set, who I want to be, what my potential is, where am I really at in this? Let's use a job for an example and be like, okay, well, these are my skills. This is where I can be an A player. How much of my A player qualities am I able to execute on a day-to-day basis in this role? That might be the first part of the analysis. And then the second part of the analysis might be then analyzing, call it your organization or your team or your unit, whatever it might be. And then being like, okay, based on me being an A player, how does this structure and environment allow me to be an A player? And what would you rate that as? Like, would you give your organization a B, a C, a D in terms of being able to execute that? And I think when you like some practical ways to analyze that is, okay, well, uh, does my leader or manager allow me to perform the things that I think I'm best at that can positively impact the organization? Am I being developed um, to nurture those skills? Am I getting the opportunities to then execute them? If I have an idea, can I present it without it being rubbished or just kicked out of the door? Um, are there resources available for me to go and execute my A playerness? Call it. And then that might be just your your document that allows you to provide an analysis. And then from there, the actions might be, okay, well, is it time for me to go and have a extreme ownership conversation? If you are in a C organization and you're being a C player, like you, your chances of progress are going to be probably pretty limited anyway. So That's it might the key be word worth putting it out. That's the key word that the key word I think is progress. Yeah. Because when you have that, awareness and you do map these things down and you can see things clearly and you can move yourself into a position where you're going to allow yourself to get more progress. That's that that, I, I feel as if that for me in particular is one of the golden rules that I have to have in my life without progress of some sort, I start to fall into a terrible state. Yeah. And I think, a leader that is really good at taking ownership ensures there's always progress for the team and themselves. Yeah. So it's like, sure. it's, it's the oxygen I feel that human beings just need. And with no ownership, there's no progress. Therefore, there's no oxygen. Yeah. So for it's, sure. no, and I, I loved all the advice you gave to people to be able to get more clarity on, you know, you playing in the right arena. One thing that you told me to do uh, and we did this in December when we were doing our life design together mm. was that what do people come to you for, for advice? Mm. And I think that's such a great thing because it gives you a clue as to what it is that you're really, really yeah. good at because otherwise why would people come to you? Yeah. And yeah. I was thinking about this for the people around me as opposed to just for myself. And I thought, Oh, I mean, what do people come to my wife for? Like we'll pay mm. when, what do they come to her for? They always come to her for cooking tips. Because she is the most incredible chef. I mean, last night we had Chinese New Year and I felt like I was in Malaysia. You know, it's six different dishes, incredible meals, people all around eating. And every, everyone who was eating the food had basically a religious experience while they were sitting at the dinner table. And it was beautiful, <laughs> right? And they always come to her for advice on food, you know, on parenting, 
etc. On, on how to train their husbands. She's very good at that as well. So all of these things, like they, they go to <laughs> her for advice for this. That's so good. Yeah. yeah well, that, that, see, that's, good that's money there. That's just cash <laughs> in the bank. Like, I think training husbands, if you've got Dude, that sorted. Well, she's trained me so well that that basically, <laughs> she she basically owns a pretty big part of my business. Every time I get paid, a massive amount goes to her. So she's She's done that well. She's done that well. That's royalties. That's a, that's a management phase. I love it. Oh, she's good. Yeah. But it's it's so, interesting in thinking yeah. about this for the people around you and the people you yeah. love. And and something sure. that was really cool that I did as a result of you teaching me this was that mm-hmm. I just I just wrote to the four or five key people around me that hey, I always come to you for this advice and and I feel that this is kind of like a little hidden area of passion or you know, profession yeah. maybe in the distant future that I just wanted to flag you on. And it just got amazing conversations going because immediately, and, and the ones I got it wrong clearly because they're like, oh yeah, man, nah. But the ones that I got it right, they're like, oh man, you noticed that? Oh, wow. And then it just opened up this yeah. beautiful conversation. So it's a, <laughs> it's a nice little nugget to, to share with the people you love around you. I love the ones that you got wrong, like where you yeah, thought that they were giving wrong. you so much value and they're like, oh no, sorry, dude. Like I'm really bad at that. And I uh, yeah. don't even know anything about it. You're like, oh, okay. Listen to your advice. On yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, but maybe that's a good tip as well because it's something that they well, can't see that well, the, you the can see thing, or that you're getting value from. The interesting thing about that experiment was that mm. the I only did it for four of my close friends. Mm. The four people that I did it for, only one of them was actually doing what they that I went to them for as a profession. Mm. Mm. The other three weren't. Like it was also like completely out of that realm. So it was a really interesting experiment. It was a really interesting cool. experiment. But let's not get too far away from this book because it's about extreme ownership. And, and one thing I have to say as well is I, I tried to watch a few podcasts uh, of Jocko and, and Leif yeah. as well. And, and I have to say there's something about seals mm. and sounding really hardcore mm. because oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think there are any seals that probably sound like you and me. <laughs> no, like we, sound, no. we sound soft. We sound, yeah. we sound like we, we, we're mushy. We sound. I, I can guarantee you, I'd be a D player in the uh, in, in the Navy SEALs. <laughs> you, like my it, inability to swim, probably vocal oh, range. Me too. Like, Can't swim. Like yep. Your voice is way too high. Like you wouldn't make oh, it past the first stage just purely because of that. It's too pleasing. <laughs> it's too comfortable. Yeah, it's won't come to me. Nah. Just I'll nurture you. Don't worry. Whereas I listened yeah. to a, an episode of of Jocko yeah. and Leif, and and it was like, hey man. Did you yeah. uh, did you get up at four this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Like, I was like, "Is that is that your real voice?" <laughs> I mean, like imagine imagine a seal just for a second that was like, "All right, guys, let's <laughs> let's attack that command now." I, I don't yeah. think. I think one of the prerequisites yeah. to be a, a seal is they they put you through a voice test, and and, and, and if you don't sound like this, I don't think you're going to be able to be a seal. You dominated though because you're like communication expert. So you just well, I can be able do the to, voice, yeah. but I can't do the running. I can't do the swimming. I can't do the carrying of the boat. I can't do the extreme <laughs> lack of sleep. I can't do the being in the cold. I can't do the lack of food. There's a lot of things I can't do, Ali. And then see, this is good though because like you've got a good self awareness around oh, maybe ownership. you're maybe you're yeah. you're better aligned to not I, being a Navy SEAL. <laughs> I, I, told, I told Pei Wen on the afternoon because we, we, we yeah. had dinner the other night with friends and they were like, oh, well, like, you know, last time we went to your house and we remember the sink was broken. Like, who, who, who fixed your sink? Because we want to get someone out. Like, yeah. And they all looked yeah. at me and I was like, no, 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 no. I, if, it, if for me, if it doesn't, if yeah. it doesn't, if I can't use communication to fix it, yeah. it can't be fixed. 
Yeah. And like, there's no way communication is going to fix a broken sink. (laughs) You know, so my my wife actually fixed it, which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And when she fails to do so, I call someone immediately. Uh, For me, if I can't can't convince somebody else to do it or negotiate some arrangement where they could do it for me, I'm pretty much paralyzed. (laughs) Just like a turtle. We would make the worst (laughs) thing. Yeah. (laughs) So bad. Yeah, you so, try to negotiate, and I try to use charisma. Yeah, I'm like, hey guys, how, how about how about we just like don't do this war right now? Like, maybe there's a better alternative. <laughs> and, and I'll jump in with a lullaby and try to sing them, and just like, it's okay, yeah. guys, we don't have yeah. to do this. You just anyway. a 45 minute keynote and why like 45, we shouldn't dude, do the war. They would be so inspired, but they may be yeah. inspired to oh. attack us. No, I think I think you'd be great at getting the the troops pepped up and ready to go. Yeah, but like there's not very inspiring after narrative. because because generally after the person gives that really yeah. courageous and and in yeah. motivational talk, then you you turn your horse around and you're the first to go into battle. Whereas <laughs> for me, I'd give that talk and immediately have to walk through the thousands of soldiers <laughs> yeah. to the back of the line and then say, "And now go." You know, yeah, it's not very and, and I'll I'll be here in the private jet about to leave this dangerous area but you guys good luck yeah. no you you won't even be in the jet you'll be zooming yeah. into the call yeah, yeah, yeah from yeah, a very yeah. safe destination but all right let's, written, let's get on with this yeah. get on with it it's, uh, we why, why don't you, why don't you share a few thoughts why don't you share a few thoughts that you thought were really valuable and, and give a bit of context behind them um i think i liked the the chapter on keeping it simple Okay. Yep. So, so simplicity, just when there's a lot of uncertainty. And I don't know if you remember this story, but that a commander come in that were going to go on a little mission. Mm. The commander was pretty new and was saying, hey, we should go do this, this, this. We're going to go on like this different route. We'll go really deep. And then I can't remember if it was Jocko or Leaf was like, hey, how about we just do a short one, keep it pretty simple, and then see how we go from there. And then lo and behold, like they're under attack. And if they did made, gone down the complicated route, they probably all would have died. But keeping it simple gave them a chance at having a successful mission. And I remember reading this like four or five years ago. And I can definitely get sucked into complexity and also wanting to focus on eight to 10 different missions at the same time. Like I love holding large amounts of information in my head and then being ready to strike on an opportunity when it's ready to go. Whereas this book was pretty pivotal, just that concept of simplicity that then got me, okay, we need to focus in on two to three things. And I remember this with the book, Good to Great, which is Jim Collins's business book, another great We one. need to do a podcast on that. That's a great book. Yeah, we should have that on the list for sure. Yeah. But I remember reading that at a similar time around, yeah, probably 2018, where it was just a couple of concepts from this book, like extreme ownership, being clear, keeping things simple, understanding your flywheel. Like all of these different toolkits, I think, really helped change and set the foundations of how we operated as an organization. You know, it was nearly – like our rule book started forming from some of these lessons that came from these books that we'd read. So I think simplicity and focus is something that's often overlooked and it's so much easier to try to make a complex plan or get so much detail. But even now when I think about future golf, like realistically the core of what we do is if we have really great partnerships 
that give our members benefits. That's the core of the flywheel. You know, and it's not that much more complicated. Whereas when I was looking at it, and it's been the same flywheel for seven years or eight years. Whereas I remember at that time in 2018, we were looking at things like merchandising and, you know, commercial deals. And you're looking at different types of events and all these things that would definitely add to the organization, but they were quite far away from the flywheel. And when you've got a team of two or three, at that time, and like it's great to have these big ambitions, but the things that we wanted to try to execute back then, you probably needed a team of 200 or 500 to actually do all of those things. And I remember having these massive lists of all the different items that we would tick off. And some of those things are still in our Asana, our project management tool from like four or five years ago. But wow. you can just see them. They still, a lot of them probably moved up the priority list in time, but a lot of mm. the, those ideas are still pretty solid. They could work, but just aren't really linked to the flywheel that strongly. So we, we started training ourselves in that habit of keeping it simple and then focusing on, you know, the, the core objectives. And it's still a thing that we practice and we're learning out a little bit more, but I think that was just a note that I made this time around is get really clear on what the mission is, get, keep the plan as simple as possible and then ensure that it's clearly communicated. Cause I think that's some, that's definitely one of my weaknesses is I'll outline the top level somewhat and there might be seven or ten things in the top level, but then actually mm-hmm. communicating and getting everyone on board with this is what we're going to do, this is why we're doing it, getting everyone's input. That's probably another area. I've got some members within the team that can do this really well, um, which is an awesome support, better than I could do it. And then there's probably some areas within the organisation where, yeah, we need to just – get that communication going through deeper levels of the organization as well. You just made those two words link up really well, the words simple and clear. I think if what you do is complex, then it's not clear. And if what you do is simple, then it's clear, which means that you can't have one without the other. Clarity comes from simplicity. Clarity often doesn't come from complexity. And I, I, I love that, that chapter because it really resonated with me from a teacher point of view. Because again, when I teach communication skills and presentation training, the more complex I make, when I, I, when I used to make it complex, again, just to examine why people lean towards complexity, I lean towards complexity because I felt that that's what makes me appear to be an expert. Because I had, I had kind of self-esteem issues and, and imposter syndrome. So to me, I thought, oh, if I show them how complex all of this stuff is, they're going to think, wow, this person's so smart. Yeah. I feel like that, that, that go-to move of going to complexity tends to come from, for me being, again, again a thought leadership space, very different, different to, to potentially the space that the listeners are in. But it just, I find that that addiction to complexity is just kind of a self-worth thing, is that I need you to know that I'm smart. I need you to know that what I'm talking about I need you to know that I know what I'm talking about and that's why I need to show you the complexity behind it. Whereas that's yeah, not effective for teaching. It's yeah. ineffective because it overwhelms the person. Whereas simplicity is what just helps students yeah. flourish. Because sure. again, simplicity, and thank you for making that connection for me. I never made that before. And it's that simplicity is what leads to clarity. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the words that we often use is distilling. Yeah, I love that. And, and you get, I think, simplicity simplicity and clarity 
from being able to distill things. Like when when you were saying what leads you to complexity, for me, I get more complex when there's higher levels and degrees of uncertainty. So I will I will just keep collecting more and more dots and variables, more plans, more options, more opportunities, so that we have multiple ways forward. Now, there might be a hundred of those in there, but often at any given time, maybe only three of those are really viable, right? Like if I even think back to the simplicity of our flywheel during the pandemic, like that just, we couldn't execute on a large part of that because you hampered. So then we had to look at a lot of those wider dots, but didn't really pursue too many of them too far. Like say if we explored a hundred different dots, call it, or ways forward, um, we ended up maybe executing four or five of those. But we only got to those four or five from being able to distill from those hundred, call it. And that's probably another maybe skill potentially in leadership or decision-making is because the game's always changing, right? It never stays the same. So you can have a really amazing plan that's really simple and clear. But And I love this quote in the book as well, is that the enemy gets a vote, right? Which means that you can have the best plan in the world, but there's going to be some resisting force on the other side, whether it's the market, customers, suppliers, government, changing areas. And you've got to be aware of those two and how they link in to your plan moving forward. So if you can, I think the ideal state is a really clear and simple plan that will work ultimately when there's pretty good environmental conditions, but can also work when you've got some uncertainty, but then also being able to change your thinking nearly getting that new plan as quickly as possible, but then distilling it so it's clear and simple as well as you can. And that is sometimes often the hardest thing is, yeah, turning that complexity or that strategy or that action plan into something that is easy to communicate. From a teaching standpoint, the only way that I'm able to distill effectively complex content is to spend a lot of time with it. If I've only read through or studied or been to one class on this particular topic, it's very difficult for me to distill. Whereas to me, I have to become very familiar with that area before I'm able to distillize. It's like when you distill liquid, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to distill. So you use that metaphor. You have to spend time. And I feel like if I was to relate being a teacher to a leader, which I think they're pretty interchangeable terms, depending on at which point you're leading people, it, you've got to know your stuff and you've got to know it well and you've got to have depth. Yeah, and you need depth and width as a leader because only then do you go, oh, I see the connection to this. We actually don't need step five. We can go step one, two, three, four, then six because that's irrelevant. Like You can't see those moves unless you're very familiar with that area. Which, which, which then means that to keep things simple, as a leader, you have to have gone through the complex and understand it well. You can't get by as a leader surface level knowledge. It's very difficult. You need depth of understanding. It's why I guess you know when they look for a CFO, they look someone who's been in the finance industry for a long time and they go for an accountant because the accountant is just deep in the weeds of numbers and understands the financial number. Like They understand that world so well that they can distill things very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's the speed of distillation. Digging into that a little bit deeper because I know you're very good at this. 
What's an example of how you distill a complex concept or topic and how do you go about it? And then I'll share with you how I kind of do it. To take something complex in the world of teaching and making it simple requires the use of analogies and metaphors, right? Right. So, so say, for example, if I was teaching people communication, I, I can list eight different areas. You know, you've you got to learn about body language. You've got to learn about within body languages, hand gestures, there's bloody you know, eye contact, there's movement, different ways to use the stage, different ways to use the virtual space, if that's what you're talking about, virtual body language. But then there's, 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 there's your vocal dynamics, there's vocal mastery, there's projection, there's all the different ways in which you can use your voice. So it's, it's very complex if I look at it from there. But then if I use an analogy when I'm teaching my students, that helps them frame the knowledge, right? So to make things simple, you've got to understand that you're teaching them something unknown. So to make it simple, you need to connect the unknown to unknown. Okay. So now what do people know? People kind of generally understand music. So then I use the music analogy. What I say to the students when they join my classes, I go, look, what we're going to do is we're going to learn how to play our instrument, right? That's our voice. Now, I want to share with you at a high level, the first thing we need to do is we need to learn how to play the instrument, all right? And that's how we use our voice. Then the next thing we've got to do is we then need to learn how to write great music, and that's storytelling, right? So just by using that simple analogy of learning how to use your voice, then learning how to write great music or play the instrument and then write great music, that frames that lesson and distills it. I can tell them what that lesson is about in less than 30 seconds, but it frames it nicely for them in their mind, which reduces the cognitive load, which then allows them to consume the content way easier. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's the use of analogies and metaphors. And, and often the only way you can see those analogies and metaphors connecting with what it is that you teach is if you've spent a lot of time with it and you've tried a lot of different analogies. Yeah. I- yeah, that's the way you kind of teachers do it. Yeah, you've just hit the real core of, I think, leadership in many senses here. Because I think that concept of storytelling is very often overlooked. Like even I was thinking about some of the best strategies and when we've had the team really locked in, it's usually been based on having quite a compelling story. Because Mm -hmm. what stories and analogies allow people, I think they allow for that clarity to happen and for people to see how what they're doing fits in with the why, right? Like if you're going to commit 50 to 100 hours a week to something, um, if you know why you're doing that and how it connects to the bigger picture and you have a really compelling story, I think that's how we see a lot of great performance, right? We go back to the sports analogy. The story is really simple. You know, it's like if we play really well as a team here, we'll win the championship. And we'll be one of 30 teams that wins the championship. And that's a moment that will never get forgotten, right? So it becomes a pretty easy story for everyone to connect to. That's probably one of the ones that everyone relates to, or even the army. It's like, okay, if we all work together as a team here, if we execute our plans, we'll hopefully get to go home and see our families again. And, you know, we'll complete that objective, whatever it is, whether it's liberating someone or whatever that narrative is. But I think the army probably does the story concept pretty well too. So going back to this, and you'd probably see this a lot more, like have you seen that difference when you work with leaders that are great at storytelling versus those that aren't? Is there a difference in performance? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because leaders who storytell get more emotional buy-in, whereas leaders who just project a, we need to hit 1.3 billion 
there's no emotional pull there. There's no emotional influence. It tends to be just, uh, well, I'm just hitting a number. And then you tend to find that those people are more, they're not as fulfilled and they'll move jobs the moment someone pays them $13,000 more. Mm. You know, whereas leaders who do use storytelling and, and do it in an engaging way, they keep people forever. You know, and, and, and people are way more committed to the goal because just like in this book, I mean, a few points where it talks about it, as a leader, you have to believe in what you're doing. And if you don't genuinely believe in what you're doing and you believe in the vision, people feel it, people know it, people can sense it, people feel it. Right? They, 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 they innately, they can sense it. Mm-hmm. And yep. the only way to get other people to believe it the same way you believe it, the, the ultimate device to use is storytelling. And really then, is the ultimate device. And say you're working, like for someone that's maybe working in an environment where it's really hard to differentiate yourself or it's quite a common space. Like I know you're really connected to the pharmacy industry and, you know, for the most part, the core offering is pretty similar. How can you execute storytelling in those types of organizations as a leader? As a leader? In your organization? Is, it, is this B2C or you do your team members? Yeah, probably you to your team members. I think, yeah. like as you mentioned there, where how do you protect against? So, say you're working in something that's really hard to differentiate. Mm-hmm. How do you stop that team member for leaving for a five grand pay rise or a ten k pay rise through effective storytelling? Like, what would be your advice to that? Well, f- well, first of all, look at what storytelling accomplishes. What storytelling does for you as a leader, let's say with your people, is you get more connection and more buy-in, more trust, more rapport. That's all of the wonderful things you get when you yeah. storytell. I mean, let, let's, let's look at our relationship just for a second, right? Mm. The reason you and I are so connected, the reason why the moment I need something, you're always there. When you need something, I'm there for you. The reason we're like this with the people around us is because you know more stories about me as a person. And the more stories you know about me, the more connected to me you feel. And the more stories that I tell you, the more you start to be able to piece together, oh, who I truly am, what my values are. And the more of that that happens, then all of a sudden we feel more bonded, we feel more connected, we feel more rapport. Now, what happens in workplaces with leaders is that leaders never share any stories about themselves and they don't do it in an effective way so that their people know nothing about them. I mean, how many times, it's crazy how many times this happens when I teach my students is that they say, Vin, over three days, we feel more connected to you than I feel with my manager that I've worked with for seven or eight years. So why would you be connected to someone? Why would you trust someone? Why would you be loyal to someone if you don't know them? So again, what will keep people and hold retention is if they know more about you. If but again, you've got to be able to use the stories about you, use stories that you tell, and then link it to key objectives that you want done. Mm-hmm. It can't just be, oh, I'm just going to tell you my life story, sit down, let's talk for 30 hours. No, no, it's not about that. It's about strategically and, and, and effectively using key stories from your life and then linking it to key objectives that you want achieved. Oh, love that. Right? It's, and- it, it, because it's, it's a tool. It's, storytelling is actually a device. It's a tool. It's like these seals had particular guns and, 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 and weapons that they used. In reality, when we're not fighting an actual war, one of the weapons you can use that's highly effective is storytelling. Yeah. And this, this yeah. also links to some of the episodes that we've done on Brene Brown, where mm. that concept of vulnerability. So 
I love how you just linked that because I think the real practical takeaway from that is that if you're working for, say, an organization or you've got mm. a team in an environment where maybe, you know, it doesn't have that traditional sexiness to it, you know, or it's hard to differentiate the what you do, the way that you can build really great connection is by strategically sharing stories and then building that bond through storytelling with your team members. And I love that because you're right. Like if, like even when I think back to our team, for the most part, we've got great alignment because we're doing something that we're all generally passionate about. So we're connected to the, say, the story of golf just on the broad level. So I think that also reduces maybe the reliance even on having to be connected to each other as much um, because we know that either way what we're doing is for the betterment for something that we love, which is Mm. the actual industry. But then when you add that with being connected to your team, so the fact that, you know, for the most part, most of us are actually really close mates and we do know a fair bit about each other and we've spent time together even prior to really working together. I think that gives you a really beautiful mix of that, call it storytelling connection. But even now when I'm looking at it, like one of the the action takeaways for this is cultivating more opportunities for everyone to share more stories. But that would be something that probably haven't done as much of. And when you learn to link it and make it relevant as well, that's the secret sauce. I mean, let, let's mm-hmm. give a live example right now, okay? Yeah. So say I, uh, I'm a leader of my team and I want to help them in the area of improving the way, let's say sales, okay? Yeah. I mean, and a simple one is, like I, I share this in my online course, but the, the, the way that people would normally approach as a leader, as I train my team to get better at sales, the way they'll do it is gather everyone together and then they'd immediately say, all right, everyone, look, we're going to talk through the three best ways we can improve our ability to, to, to sell. And option A is this, option B is this, option C is this. What the leader in that situation has missed out on is the opportunity to connect, to build rapport, to build trust, to build connection, to build loyalty. Because again, I'm just dispensing information. I'm not connecting with you. So what the leader could do then is then they could share a story about themselves and then link it eloquently into that. So for example, if I took one from my life and, and, and I hope you don't mind, Ali, I'll just kind of give the listeners an example. I love of it. What, what, what I can do is I'll open it this way. I'd say, you know, hey, thanks everyone for joining. Look, before we start, I'd, I'd love to share with you. My, my anniversary is coming up and it made me think of how I met my wife. But I, I remember in South Australia, Adelaide, there's a beautiful bar called Distill, actually called Distill. We just talked about distillation. It's hilarious. But the beautiful bar called Distill. And I saw this beautiful Malaysian girl at the bar and I thought, oh, man, I have to go up and, and try, to, try to woo her. So then I, 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 obviously being a magician, I pulled out my packet of cards. I walked over to her and I said, I said, would you be impressed if I transformed this king of hearts into the queen of hearts like yourself? And I thought it was an absolute That's brilliant good. line. I mean, I know that would have got you, Ali. Oh, horrible. Then, oh, beautiful. You would have, you would have just oh, swept you off your feet. But she, she, she looked at me and she said- Where did said, you Google this one? <laughs> She looked at me and she says, you know, I'd be more impressed if you transformed into a real man and had a conversation. Yeah, with solid payment. That's so well, that's exactly what you deserved. I like it. Absolutely. <laughs> crushed me. Crushed yeah, me. Crushed your spirit. And, and, yeah. And I remember my my response to her was literally, no, thank you. And I just left. And mm-hmm. I and I came back to this bar four times in a row to to try to see her again. And the fourth time she was there. And the fourth time I went there, and I kind of said, Hi, would you be impressed if I transformed into a real man, took you out for a coffee? 
you know, we went out on our first date as a result of that. And, and the rest is history. We're married with a beautiful boy now. And look, the reason why I share this story with all of you here today is because of sales. And I'll tell you how this connects. When you think back to my story about how I approached my wife, she said no, not to me, but she said no to my approach. When I approached her in the right way and I left the gimmicks behind and I approached her authentically, she was happy to go on a date with me. And in a way, the sale, if you want to call it that, was successful. Now, that's what's happening here with our organization is that we're approaching the customers wrong. We're we're using the sales scripts and we're being inauthentic. We're using these gimmicks. What I want to go through today for the next 30 minutes is I want to to take you through how we can leave the gimmicks behind and, and show up as our authentic selves, offering our service and our product. Here are the three ways in which we're going to do that. Now, I took an extra two minutes to tell the story. I get it. There are a lot of people who go, no, no, we want to go straight to the point. We want to get straight to the point. But I'm like... Yeah, but you're going straight to the point, sacrificing an opportunity to connect deeply because now that little bit of that story about me and how I met Pei Wen lives in the mind of all my team members, now humanizing me as a, as a leader. Now you feel more connected to me. Now I'm more human to you. You probably trust me more. Now there's more rapport. Now there's more chemistry in the room. Now you're more engaged, ready to learn the lessons. Mm-hmm. Now there's a metaphor, there's a frame for what we're about to learn. Let's leave the tricks behind. Let's leave the gimmicks behind. Let's show up as our authentic selves. And that's why storytelling is so powerful because every time you engage in a training moment, you have the opportunity to share who you are and connect it seamlessly to what you're about to talk about. That's cool. I think the other cool thing, what you did there too, is say for sales, for example, you've given that team an example of how to actually execute it too. Mm. Because even if they just duplicate exactly what you did the next time they try a sales call or a conversion, mm. even just using your story, if it was done- They'll debated, remember it. They'll, they'll remember, remember it. it, but it's they'll sticky. probably also be able to test it. You yeah. know, like it might just be changing a few words of that story and even going mm. out there, like just as a sales tool, that's an amazing- presentation nearly right because you're saying that hey this is everyone's had a story like that where they've done something inauthentic and what's the biggest thing with sales is that you're worried that somebody's going to try to trick you into something so you use that story Mm. you even just yeah the the word trick all all of a sudden that's a different angle now right all of a sudden that's another angle how many times do salespeople trick people i mean let's have here when said yes Mm. you would have tricked me into so you're right and and i I, and it's hard because i don't want this whole podcast to be about storytelling but but i hope the listeners can get a sense of how powerful it is and, and why in leadership it's so important for you to use storytelling. Because every teaching opportunity is an opportunity to share a little bit about who you are, to humanize yourself as a leader. And when your people see you as a human being, it changes the dynamic a little. And it, it just, there's more connection. You'll get more fulfillment. They will get more fulfillment. I mean, and I think that's ultimately one of the core things that people are looking for in life. It's why everybody says before they die, their biggest regret is I didn't connect more with my best friends. I didn't connect mm-hmm. more with the people that I love. It's connection. You bring that as a leader, that is your ultimate weapon. For sure. And, and I think it's important not to overlook the, um, like overlook storytelling because probably two-thirds off this book is storytelling. The only reason why these leadership – like if you actually break down the leadership principles here – 
Mm. There's nothing that's really groundbreaking that mm, yeah, probably isn't right. in another 50 different books. But mm. this becomes quite a powerful book because of the effectiveness the of their storytelling. The metaphors and, then, and the storytelling. Yeah. Because, linking, I, I mean, right? I will say that a lot of these concepts I've read from the five levels of leadership from John Maxwell. Yeah, right? sure. Again, th- these things come up all the time. It's not yeah. different. What's different about it is the stories that he uses to illustrate it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we'll tend to find is that it's funny because you and I have read a lot of books now and a lot of books tend to repeat the same things. Same. The only thing that's different is the story in which the person went through to learn that lesson. And the interesting thing here is the reason why I continue to read and don't fall into a state of, oh, I've read it all. It doesn't matter because everything's mm-hmm. the same anymore all the time because different stories speak to me differently, which sometimes make the lessons more sticky. It's like the complete ownership. I've heard of this before, but I had to hear it from a seal because to hear it from the point of view of the seal and the situation where he took responsibility in the room full of his men, that made the lesson hit different. Mm. Whereas if you told me full ownership in a university room Mm. with four other lecturers, Mm. that story doesn't hit the same. So the story is the delivery mechanism for the wisdom and some people need different delivery mechanisms to make the wisdom hit different, right? It's it's why that, that common thing happens among friends. It's like you tell your friend to stop smoking and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then one other person tells them to stop smoking with a story. And they're like, yeah, you're like, I told you that for the last seven years and you haven't stopped smoking. Yeah. And yeah. the reason that happens is because the other person who told them is a better communicator. That's why. Mm. Yeah. yeah. More effective. It's, it's also right. context, right? Like different voices hit differently different times. Yeah. And I think, uh, as you That's said right. there, like, I completely agree with you, even with reading. After a certain point, if you read, say, even five or 10 books on leadership, 80, 90% of the core content is going to be pretty similar. But what mm. might change is like, it's even, we've done it so many times and we've read a book four or five years ago and then we mm. reread it now. It's, got, it's nearly a completely different book because the things that we're noticing are very different to what we noticed at that given time. So maybe that's just another little tip as well. If you've read a book that you really loved 10 years ago, maybe dust it off and give it a reread and see, see how it hits this time around. I've got Naval's book um, in my sequence of books, ready to read again. You know, the the almanac of Naval Ravikant. Yeah. I'm ready to like, again, it's one of those books that was so good, so impactful that I need to read it again. Yeah. I started to say that I've got four or five every year now that are pretty much reread. Every time, like the Alchemist is one. Power really, of you now got that by Eckhart Tolle. That's always okay. in the repeat. Power of Now is always one that I go and revisit. Uh, funnily enough, the four-hour work week used to be one that I'd revisit nearly every year. Whereas I nearly feel like so much of that is now completed, so I can nearly pack it away. Uh, yeah. It's more one that I'd buy and gift to people. But mm. yeah, there's. I think that's another pretty cool framework. Is go find your four or five books or documentaries or movies or whatever that you consume every year just to give you a reminder of some of those key lessons or to unearth a little bit more inspiration because that's the other thing with these lessons is they nearly wash away. I don't know if you find the same thing, but I'll read something. I'm like, God, that was amazing. That was so amazing. And then I'll implement it for like a month or two and then something else will replace it. Some other bit of information and it'll wash away. You've got to combine the lessons from Atomic Habits, I think, to help you keep it consistent, right? For example, I read Love Languages at the end of last year again to try to be better as a husband, to really be clear of what my, you know, Pei Wen's love language is. 
And so she's clear on what mine is as well. And one of the most powerful things we did was to just print it out and put it on the bathroom wall. Right? It's it's you've you've got to help yourself get better. You can't just leave it to discipline. Sometimes you you have to have reminders around. So that that was a powerful move. In, in things that I want to be conscious of, I try to stick it up on the walls that I'm consistently in front of. So that that awesome helped. Tip. Yeah, yeah, just a little tip. thing to help you there. And do you yeah. change those little prompts or whatever? It yeah, is? I what, mean, what, the the best investment we we made as a household, I think, mm-hmm. if in in terms of applic- mm-hmm. applying the knowledge that I learned from books, is a laminator, mm-hmm. a laminator and blue tack. <laughs> oh, because I'll Chantel print something out, laminators. Oh, dude, it's amazing. Well, because you can keep stuff in the bathroom. The bathroom, like yeah. my wall in the bathroom is crazy. It's just a bunch of stuff stuck all over the place. But it just, yeah. you go there every morning and you know that and you'll see it in your peripheral and you go, ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Got to keep that mm-hmm. in mind. And you'll be surprised how easy we forget, how easily we forget. Yeah. Just as you uh, were saying that thought, I think what this is about, it's nearly like, with digital marketing and advertising, one of the key metrics is frequency. Like how often can you get an ad in front of somebody's eyeballs and remarketing, right? Like we all experience it where you click on a website and then it just follows you around forever. Social media. media. But I think we nearly need to do that. We can use that positively, right? Like how many different Mm. spots can you see those important messages? And the one that I use, I, I use Evernote a lot and I just have a file where I pretty much track and, use that as my to-do list, a day-to-day to-do list in there as one of the tools that I utilize. But I always have two to three lines, which is key focus areas. Like what am I working on? Is it, you know, nearly like an intention, I guess, that I'm focusing on. It's like, okay, well, let's have some good, slow and deep breathing today. Let's pick three to five high impact moves. Let's make sure that we're enjoying the day and, approaching with like an element of playfulness and that might change, you know, every month or every two months, but it's like those two or three prompts, which is like the equivalent of posting it on the bathroom. So yeah, I like that thing of seeing it visually as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I love it. That, that we're just going to remarket ourselves on the Re- things that are important to us. Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I loved this one simple passage from the book where it was talking about how as Marines, they debrief. They do a debrief after every mission. And every mission, they always ask three questions. Very simple. What went right? What went wrong? How can we adapt our tactics to make even more effective and increase our advantage over the enemy? Make us more effective and then increase our advantage over the enemy. And my team, my management team were lucky enough at one point to have a speaker who was a Green Beret. And he, he implemented into the team, this was about a year and a half ago, the debrief with clients. So once a client would book us as speakers, my manager then implemented, you know, we'll do, usually we'll do a briefing call before the event or the training masterclass so that we can get really familiar as the thought leader on what we need to train the people on. We learn more about the audience. So, so that call is very standard in the industry. It's kind of like a getting to know your client so you can better serve them call. Mm-hmm. But we've never done a debrief call. <laughs> and then a year and a half, this speaker introduced into us, uh, our, our management system, a debrief call. And we've been doing it ever since. And that has been the single best move in business that my management team have made in terms of increasing business and revenue for my business. It's been unbelievable. Just setting up that debrief call and say, hey, of course, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear what went well and, and what you really enjoyed and everyone gave feedback on. 
And then just being super clear on, hey, what was the one thing that we could have done better? And just sitting with that silence and creating a really safe environment where you use a bit of humor, make them laugh and build connection, build rapport, and create that safe environment so that they do share that one thing. Far out did we, did we learn a lot. And, and I just created a frame for them. And I created a frame that, you know, all speakers have a superpower. And of course, I, I, want, I would love to hear about what you enjoyed about the superpower that I, I brought to the table. But then every superhero also has kryptonite. Yeah. You know, we also have something that crushes us. And, 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 and the worst kind of kryptonite is the kryptonite that we're not aware of. And that, that's why we're here on this call. But really, the ultimate reason we're on that call as well is then we also continue the conversation and continue to work together. Whereas after, before, I used to kind of come in, do the thing, and then we're never there again. But the debrief call now has led to clients that have become year-long clients, uh, multiple-year clients, uh, multiple engagement clients. It's been amazing, and it all came down to the debrief. That's awesome. And then what- It's what, crazy. Do you mind sharing a couple of things that you've learned where you found improvements from that one thing that they provide? Definitely. So one of the things on my end, because I teach communication, is that- I don't give people enough time to be able to apply the lessons they're learning in the breakout rooms because I get so fixated on, I need to teach, 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 teach. I knew that application was important, but I didn't give them enough time to apply. For example, that was one of them. The second one that I got feedback on was I, I needed to give people some homework before so that they could come into it more prepared. Whereas I kind of took the mindset of, oh, I just, I kind of want this to be a bit of a surprise. I kind of want to go into it and, and then start. I didn't want to give pre-work, but some of my clients will say, hey, you know, a little bit of pre-work would have primed our people a little bit better, you know, and, and they would have gone into it a little bit better. The second, I'll, I'll share one more. And the, and the third one that they shared with me was that they wanted things that were ongoing. They, they didn't they didn't want it too close together because the way I run my masterclasses is I go two hours every day, five days consecutively. Whereas they asked for, is it possible to spread it over five weeks every Monday for the next five weeks? Uh, things that I was completely blind to that mm-hmm. I didn't think was important. I, that, that was my invisible kryptonite. Because my public market, I got to serve differently to my corporate market. My corporate market, their people don't have two hours every day for five days. Um, whereas we can give you two hours a week over five weeks. And that was crippling my business and I didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. Now that I offer the two weeks once a week, change the offering slightly, wow. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that that feedback loop is so important. Mm. And I think that's where also extreme ownership as a broader concept can help, especially as your team grows and gets bigger. Because what can often happen in a leadership type of environment or leadership relationship is people get fearful of providing feedback that might be negative or could hurt. So if you don't have that openness and realistically that feedback loop is the core part to progress, right? Like it might lead in your example, it might lead you to creating new products, being able to service your clients better, higher satisfaction, more referrals, more ongoing um, business, so like all these benefits come from you providing an opportunity for vulnerability at the end of the day and really trying to unearth that true feedback. And it's so funny. Every time you ask clients for that, mm. you can yeah. see how rare it is mm. because people aren't very good at doing it. 
Nah. They're well, no so one wants to, right? To give you feedback. They're so scared, the poor of things. And, and that's why yeah. you have to really create that safe environment, safe really environment. paint the picture of, yeah. you know, there, there are, there's well, invisible kryptonite all around me and mm. it's affecting me in ways I don't even know. I need it. Yeah. You know, well, they've just had this really, really positive experience with you. That's and right. they just want to talk about how good it is or whether That's they're true. deep down they've decided whether they'll never hire you again. They now don't want to then go through that. Uh, it, it's a bit like yeah, when you're doing a job valuable. application. Yeah. Like, like how rare is it when after you've been denied a role or you've come second or third and applying for a role when that person actually gives you true feedback versus what? your application was great. It was a really hard decision between number one and two, but – like that's kind of the generic response I think that most people provide because it's easier to execute. But you hear those rare stories where people give genuine feedback. What one of my students that's joining my my virtual masterclass next week, the reason he's there was because a job interviewer gave him truthful feedback. And he because I, I, I always ask people, you know, where did you hear about my class from? Mm. And he said, the only reason I'm here is because of this email. And then I looked at the email he sent me and the interviewer wrote some really hard truths, no bullshit. But I looked at his email and, and he was basically pleading for the reason why he didn't get, mm. he didn't, didn't get the job. And, and he was being really nice about it. And then the person actually gave him the hard truth. And it was because she, she mentioned all the things. She said, you, you lacked presence. You, you, know, you checked off all the technical skill, but you lacked presence. You didn't seem confident. You barely gave me eye contact through through our meeting on Zoom, and it was just like really tough feedback. That's awesome, and it just it just made me and and but the way she gave it was you know it, it wasn't mm. it, it was someone who lacked time obviously because there was no care in the way she delivered it. It was just kind of hard truths one after the other, but in a way it was damn it was great. Because again, that's a classic example of that particular student of mine who's coming along and I really hope he doesn't mind me showing this. I mean, I didn't say his name. Yeah, I didn't say his name. So what's, what's good was, was that, that that's an example of complete ownership, right? That was, I took ownership of it and then I moved forward and now I'm, I'm growing as a result. Yeah. Otherwise, it could have just been, ah, stuff it. I'm just going to apply to another thousand jobs, never improve anything about myself. Yeah. I think it's a good segue into the concept of ego. Like I know we yeah, touched on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you talk about a this a little lot, bit. Brother. Yeah, I'll uh, have to dive into it with start. you. Yeah, I think um, just ego as a concept is something I've been very interested in probably for a long time. You know, I think I've got. I think well, we all ultimately have one. Um, some probably are stronger than others. Some are masked in different shapes and forms, but. For me, just getting a much more greater understanding of ego and trying to explore it has been, on a personal level, just something that, yeah, I've found a lot of benefit in, just especially in different roles that I play. Like, I think we all have an identity. We have ways that we've been shaped that ends up, you know, and, and I think just broader context, what is ego? Because I think sometimes that has a very negative connotation. Like, people use the word ego as just, you know, the egotistical maniac that is just going around with very little self-awareness um, in exerting power or being a douche essentially. Um, whereas I think it's important to look at ego as in just each individual's identity, 
right? Like how they see themselves, their values and beliefs, the stories that they tell themselves, how they process information and the, and it's probably linked very much to self-awareness, right? So practicing learning more about your ego, what makes it tick, what's good within your ego, what might be limiting within your ego, the more you learn about that, I think it probably helps with progress in terms of how to operate within the world and might even be linked to things like anxiety too because it, I think the, the clearer you are on your ego and who you are, it probably reduces that gap between how you perceive that the world should be versus its actual reality. And when, you know, you mentioned it before, when you see people that aren't very good at taking feedback or really being honest with themselves, generally speaking, the life situation also maybe doesn't play out as seamlessly as well. So that's probably broad based around just my views on ego high level. But then I think it's also important to then look at it, how it links to leadership and also the concepts within this book, because I don't know if you find it, but when you are in a leadership position, ego is probably the greatest thing that can trip you up. Mm. And do you have an example of how it's tripped you up? Do you have an example of, or, or someone you know that's a leader that you've seen it trip them up? So many, so many. Like I think for me the big one is it's at times as a leader you just – because you're executing a big part of your own vision, right, which is linked to your own beliefs and value set, it can be really hard to listen to somebody questioning a core component of that, right, because that's true to them. Um, but it might not necessarily be what you believe in. And the natural reaction for me personally, and maybe this is a common one as well, is that you try to defend it. So you go and you defend Mm. your position. And I think that's also very tricky when you're in a position of power as a leader because the more and more you do that with, say, team members, it's probably going to be less likely that they are to challenge you on certain bits and pieces. And I've always battled with this because I love, you know, at its core, like I love providing flexibility and freedom within an operating environment. But if I'm really being honest with myself, I only really like that when it's in alignment with Ali's world and what Mm. I've got in my head, it becomes a lot more challenging when you have to then explore whether you truly want to go down someone else's path. So that's one that I battle with. And it's always that, question of, all right, is this my ego just wanting to defend a held position that might not be in the benefit of the greater, call it mission or strategic objective? Or is this something that I need to sort of check myself in on and really review whether my thinking is correct on this one? And maybe the alternative is something that needs to be explored so we can progress a little bit more. And- Mm. I struggle with that because personally I'd much rather go down with the ship when I've directed it to that position than to go down with somebody else's ship. So, uh, but I think that was also an important thing for me to get used to in terms of self-awareness, in terms of how I operate. Now, the downside with that is, yeah, do you you get the variety of the perspectives? Sometimes not, but then I've also learned that when you do open it up a little bit more, and you take on that feedback because generally the people that are close to you and if you do respect their opinion, their skills, their abilities, when they're telling you something and they've mustered up their courage to come forward with you with a presentation or an alternative way forward because they can see a weakness somewhere, 
most of the time I've found that it's got pretty good merit mm. in at least exploring that. Whereas if you go too far down the egoic side, um, it's easy just to discount those things, which can then be the, then limits opportunities. Well, um, like you said, ego can really blind you mm. from really seeing. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've always believed that the closest people around you can see exactly how you can improve. They're just scared to tell you because of your ego. Yeah. Yeah. They're just afraid to tell you. I remember this one example of when I first started making a little bit of money and, 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 and succeeding, I, I just got really obsessed about material things because I didn't have a lot of material things growing up. And, and to me, material things were always a symbol of success, right? It was my values and my beliefs at the time. And it took my cousin, it took, it took a lot of courage from him to actually tell me the truth. And I didn't handle it very well because I, again, was very egotistical at the time, <laughs> defended it. But he, he, he shared with me, he goes, hey, man, I just wanted to share with you that, you know, you're just buying a lot of these luxury things that, you know, once you buy them, the one I'm at your house, I see you just leave them laying around. It's like, you don't really care about these things. You're buying it just to collect. I just wanted to flag that to you because- you know, the more of these things you buy, the harder you're going to have to work, the more you're going to have to be away from the people you care about the most. It's kind of, he was just trying to share with me a little bit of feedback about life. I just took it really negatively. Mm. I just took it, oh, you must just be jealous that you can't buy these things. Yeah. You know, and, and it was funny because, yeah, my ego kind of blocked me from being able to have that self-awareness and see the truth. Mm. I and, love what you just said there. It's yeah. like how we default to the position of, well, yeah, you just don't know anything about this because yeah. you haven't experienced it. And mm-hmm. that that's also, I think when we look at ego, it's really being clear on the things that you're attached to mm. because that's generally what it's linked to ultimately, right? And this mm. is what I always battle with is that balance between being attached to things and then detached to things. And because in a way you do need to be like, I don't know if you do need to, but there's certain things that we're just automatically attached to, right? Like we're attached to our own kids more than we are to other people's kids. We're Mm. attached to our own house. Like I was thinking about this the other day. Like if you sit there, like how much do we care if something goes wrong with our own house? But if it happens to your neighbor two doors down the road and the exact same thing happens, you're probably like, oh, that's all right. Like they should be like, it just doesn't have the same thing. So it's so relative to your identity and the things that you're connected to. And for me, that's always something that I'm trying to keep in check is my level of attachment Mm. to external things, whether it's material possessions, it's things like, you know, a business, it's relationships, because when that line gets crossed and you get too attached to that belief or that value system or, you know, whatever it is, I find that for me personally, it means that I then don't have the level of freedom that I'm desiring and also start making questionable choices and decisions around it. Mm. Well, look, it's a more of a feeling, but I think, yeah, again, tying it back to leadership is for, I think, especially for a leader when you do have a position of power, or even if you're call it an A player that's rising through the ranks the reality is for you, probably ego could be one of the things that might be your greatest undoing. Mm. Whereas if you're somebody that 
is a little bit more humble or self-aware and you know that you maybe don't need to check the ego too much. Maybe you need a little bit more ego. So you have to build it up a little bit more. So you're confident and you, you're a bit more assertive and you can get what you want. But I think it, definitely for A types, this probably relates yeah. a lot more. Got to check in. I think, yeah. Like I know you do the color code test and mm. I, I know that red is a very common color that comes yeah. and does your courses. But mm. I would also guess that, a big weakness for those reds or the alphas is probably linked to ego and being blind to a few bits and pieces. Because I've now lived in the US and, and traveled the world and, and been able to see more of the world, I, I see different cultures being good at certain things and then bad at others. And one example is that it's very easy for people to use the stereotype and, and look at America as, as you know people who do have more ego, not in a negative way, sometimes can be in a negative way, but that's everywhere in the world, right? But there is that kind of feel of, oh, the American salesperson is going to be way better. Yeah. It's, it's like why I see in some companies even here in Australia, the head of sales is like some American guy, right? Mm. And, and what I saw was how powerful when you use it well, it can actually be executed. And then I also saw the flip side, you know, and, and having traveled to New Zealand so many times now, mm-hmm. I saw in New Zealand where people lack that completely, where it's almost yeah. you're too humble that when you come to the table, people actually don't see how great you are because you never talk about how great you are. And then you lose out because you're too humble. And that's why what you said there is a really good kind of reminder to everyone that it's a balance. You've, you've got, you know, it's not about having zero ego. It's mm. about understanding how to keep it in check and use it in a way that's beneficial. Yep. And that's something I had to learn in the US. It's how I was able to close more business here in Australia, having lived in the US, because the US taught me that you know, humility is great and you've got to have humility as well. But if you are just completely humble with nothing else, then that also isn't the recipe as well. It's kind of that, that balance of both. Yep. And then I, I love this. There's this passage in the book where it, it kind of listed two words at a time and it said, you know, a good leader must be confident but not cocky, courageous mm-hmm. but not foolhardy, competitive but a gracious loser attentive to the details, but not obsessed by them, strong, but also have endurance. Uh, A leader must have followers, but humble and not passive, aggressive, but not overbearing, quiet, but not silent, calm, but not robotic, logical, but not devoid of emotions. And I remember reading all of that. I went, this is great. This is kind of, it's what it's saying is balance, balance. Mm. It's not this, but that, but in the middle, not this, but that, but in the middle, it's kind of just continually talking to leaders about that ability to balance between two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? It's, it's, it's such a balancing act being a great leader. Yeah. Because there are times and when you, there are times when you have to be really strong. And I mean, look at the, the best football coaches in the world. Yeah, I'm sure there are times when they talk to their football players on the side in the locker room. Hey, it's okay. You know, we mm-hmm. lost the game, but we've got to move forward. But then there are times when they're just absolutely yelling at them. You know, it's, it's different. That's why leadership is so difficult. I feel because it requires the leader to be so adaptive. Mm. Yeah. And as a practical application of this, just as you were saying that, is if you're looking at, call it a relationship that maybe isn't working or a team dynamic that isn't working, I'd say ego would nearly be the first thing that I'd be exploring. Mm. Like what's happening within that dynamic? Because generally ego is also masking truth. 
mm. right? So w- what is it here that we're not saying that's actually true? And, like, and the antidote to this is probably openness and vulnerability, if you can create that. And that's why I think when we think of courage in many forms and those hero journey stories, it's when all the ego is really heightened, but then you see that story of somebody opening up with a story and then the whole group softening up and then also mm. opening up. And then it provides a framework for progress that isn't masked by just being defensive or protecting one's position or not wanting to be diminished. Because that's ultimately when probably call it the ego is in its worst form. And I think that's what, you know, that example you shared at the start of this podcast is what Jocko did really well. He's like, all right, something really bad's happened here. The natural tendency would be for me to go and defend it, to tell them, look, I didn't really do anything wrong. My team did all all of this incorrect. I've provided you with a debrief of everything they did. And this is who I recommend that we should get rid of. And the reality is in their system, he probably would have been the one that would have been removed because something bad let go and he would have been kicked out. Whereas he did the opposite. He went and said, look, at the end of the day, these things happen. I'm ultimately responsible and we're going to be better from this. And then that way you've got trust, right? That, okay, this person's actually open and looking to improve it's a it's a better way forward than just try to defend your position. What's really cool is I've got so, another mate. bit of clarity there as well when you said this, is that when you take ownership, you enable the next thing to happen, which is a truthful conversation of what's wrong. It almost seems like that's the barrier before people can open up and everyone talk about the truth. And when one person's willing to take that that hit, especially the leader, now we're enabling the next step of really let's talk about the truth of what's going on here. Yeah, I really like that. It's the truth. It, it, taking extreme ownership allows for the conversation of truth to happen faster. Yeah. Instead of blaming insane, and then just right? delaying and delaying and delaying. And the truth is going to come about gradually anyway. But what the leader does is we can say, look, <laughs> let's just move forward now. Let's move to that truthful conversation now. I'll take that. That's fine. Moving forward, right? It's, it's kind of the acknowledgement of progress is what we're looking for here, not blame. I love that. I love that it gets us to the truth way faster. For sure. And even if you think about the best interactions and relationships that you have in your life, most of the time, they'll be based on a very strong element of truth, right? Like how truthful and open am I with this person? Because truth also builds trust, right? Like if you have these relationships where – like you were saying, when we share stories, we're pretty open, could kind of say whatever we want, you know, then there's no real defense. There's no real diminishing. And if you think about it, in, in a lot of circumstances, even the relationships that we're closest to, like resentment can build, defense builds up, you diminish the other person, you protect your own position. So maybe that's another practical use of this is whether it's in the workplace or at home or in any other relationship is maybe take stock of some of the key relationships in your life and be like, okay, how, how open and truthful am I in this relationship? Am I defending my position in this relationship? Am I diminishing the other person to feel better about myself or to exert power? And that will probably give you a relatively good framework of the health of that relationship. And sometimes the honesty that you have to confront with how far you've let something go is also quite confronting. But it's it's a starting point if you can actually define those things to then be like, okay, well, these are things that I'm doing. These are things that I feel that we could improve a little bit more. 
Um, I was reading this in a different book as well. And I was just talking about relationships on a broader spectrum. And I was like, when you are having these conversations is don't use you language, use I language. So it's never like, Hey Vin, you did this to me. And that's why I was behaving like this. Like just start with the I, like oh. I feel like this is happening. And mm. that way it again fosters more open communication. It reminded me of my dad when, when I was young. One of the things that frightened me the most when I was a kid was mum and dad fighting. It just, it just freaked me out because my parents try to hide it from us all the time. And so when we did see it, it was really scary. It means I couldn't hide it anymore. They get really upset with each other. And I used to look at what my dad did as being like, why would dad always do this? And one of the things my dad would do is after a bit of an argument, he would always come up to my mum and say, hey, Look, I know for you to be this upset, I must have done something wrong. And my dad would always accept fault. Mm. And I remember just seeing that all the time when I was young and, and then always mm. wondering, and I never really talked to my dad about this until you know we had this conversation, but it's like he always took fault. And I saw that. It was weird. I was a kid, wasn't very mature, but I always looked at that as, like, is that a weak move, dad? Like, why are you always accepting fault and you never stand up to mum? Right. What? And and now learning this, it's it's I have a bit more clarity on those situations because mum and dad were always able to move past the arguments so quickly, <laughs> like it it didn't linger. In dad doing that and t- taking that hit, yeah, there you go. There was always progress forward. <laughs> yeah, there was always progress forward immediately, and. You know, my mum being, being the kind of my mum she is as well, she immediately shared with him things that he could do to improve, right? And and I can see it now, you know, in their later years of life that their interactions are so much better mm. because, yeah, it's funny. Someone's just got to take that first step. That's right. And when that person takes the first step enough, it lowers the other person's guard. Mm-hmm. And people around you aren't as high strung. Because yep. people expect us to be playing this blame game and then you don't play the game. They're like, oh, okay, well, well, that's well, that's great. We can have more and more and more open conversation. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's interesting. Well, well what usually happens, it's like that version of relationship tennis, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, why why didn't you clean the dishes? 15 love. Um no, I gotta work. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll do yeah. I, yeah, 15 all. It's like, yeah, well, flies will come and cause bacteria 30, 15, and then like it just keeps going and going until there's no real winner, right? Like it ends up, yeah. you end up racking up the points, but there's no real progress in those. All, all that happens is one or both parties end up walking away pretty angry. And best case scenario is you get some stuff maybe out on the table, but usually doesn't have a positive way forward. It's funny you say yeah, that. It's, it's interesting. Like- I, I see myself in my own relationship with Perwin sometimes and I try to go for aces. You yeah. Know, try to- <laughs> <laughs> the, the killer blow. <laughs> the killer blows. Yeah. 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 We try to go yeah. for those, but it's funny yeah. because marriage is such exist. an interesting relationship. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. They don't. But it's like, it's mm-hmm. such an interesting relationship. I, I found myself uh, over the last week, you know, we had a couple of conversations ourselves about things and I found myself because of the influence, I, I guess, of reading this book and having it fresh in my mind, just immediately taking ownership of the situation mm. and sitting and listening and saying, oh, you're right. I, I can do better. Yeah. You know? and, and it's funny how effective that was. Oh my God. And yeah. 
it was just, it was so powerful. I just went, wow, okay, this is a direct example of where this kind of thought process is is really effective. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and it's funny, like, how, how good our minds are at telling us a story about how we're correct all the time. Yeah. Like, it's nearly a default position, right, where we can yeah, yeah. nearly defend any single situation. It's like, oh, blah, 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 just doesn't understand. Or yeah, they can't see it from my point of view. That voice is literally yeah. on while it's on was all talking. the time. <laughs> while she was talking, I had this yeah. radio channel in my head, which is called Triple M, M me, me, yeah. me, me, right? And yeah. the media is saying, like, while they're talking, he's like, yeah, but you don't understand how busy I've been. And that's why that, yeah. you're saying this. Okay. Uh-huh. And, but I think that awareness of that voice, mm. learning to just kind of turn down the volume of Triple M, Mm. And turning up the volume of the person you care more about. Mm. Yeah. You know, th- and, and I think that's when you're kind of, that's when you're controlling the ego there. Yeah, that's when you go, sure. okay, I can hear your ego, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. I'm not listening to you right now. And th- that's when you can start to, to, to be more effective yeah. is you've got to learn to tune it out a little bit. And, and there's so many different forms that that shows up in. Like there's that one with the voice, the me, me, me voice around mm. how this is, you know, the, the, I'll call it the, oh, poor me version of the narrative where your brain is only fixated on how you're being negatively impacted by the situation. I think the other one is the, all right, I'm going to be Zen and stoic and just politely nod, but then deep down you're planning or you're just in a different world option as well. And I think that's also egoic, you know, in many ways, because you're not really allowing the other person, like I would call that the secret plan version where it's like the nod and smile, but in the back of your mind, you're like just thinking something completely different and you're just going to go take a different form of action. Like that's one that I've definitely executed a number of times. So I think there's so many different forms that can cloud open and honest, call it communication that links to leadership, you know, again, where maybe that is like, even if you look at so much of the teachings nowadays, whether it's extreme ownership, it's, Brené Brown's work. It's the five levels of leadership. There's there's a couple of great books on this, but what I think leadership ultimately is showing us is how to manage relationships where you want to achieve a shared outcome, right? Like mm. that's really what it is. Like they speak about it in this book is that like leadership is rele- irrelevant. Like you can sit there and just interact with people on a day-to-day base- basis, but leadership is about working as a group or as a team. Generally, for either a competitive outcome or an outcome that's really difficult to achieve. And that's where you need good leadership. Like, otherwise you don't really need to practice these skills. Like you can have a very average marriage. You can have a very average business. You can have an average sports team, but exceptional leadership, which is I think ultimately exceptional communication and strategy and execution and openness. It's all kind of interrelated. Mm. Um, if you want an exceptional result, then you, this is probably a foundational skill that needs to exist somewhere within your organization or your relationship dynamics, whatever it might be. One big thing, and I guess this can be the final thing that I felt like the book didn't really touch on Mm. is the importance of listening as a leader, because one of the ways to combat ego is to truly and actively listen to the other person and try to have empathy while you're listening. You know, because that came up for me in this, 
in the situation when I was taking extreme ownership, taking extreme ownership of the situation that I had with Pei Wen, for example, wasn't enough. I needed to listen as well. Mm. And I think as a leader, it, it touched a little bit on it. It talked about how, you know, you need to check in with all the team members and listen yeah. to all the team members about their perspectives. But I think that, that, is, that is a skill mm. that I've had to really learn to get good at because again, naturally being a speaker, being someone who teaches communication, even when I teach communication, it's very delivery-based and over the last few years, I've had to go down the journey of really learning how to be a better listener because that's such a big part of communication to be able to teach it, right? Yep. And when you were saying it before about our partners, the first thing we do is, and I just wanted to frame it for people with listening, but the first thing we do is we judge what the person's saying. So, you know, you talk about how I haven't cleaned the dishes. I'm thinking, well, in my head, I'm just thinking, you have no idea how wrong you are. <laughs> right? You you immediately judge. It's a judgmental kind of voice that's in your head. The second thing you do is then you potentially try to give the other person advice on how they could, you know, well, we we should, you should just get a cleaner for the house. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you try to give advice. Solution. Solution. Right. And uh, the next thing you do is you one up them and that's the tennis match. That's the, oh yeah. But did you just Mm. work an eight hour day? And yeah. then have to go on an emergency call with a client from five to eight. Did you have to do So yeah. you one up, right? Yeah. And I think the final thing you do is you just, instead of listening to them, you, 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 yeah. you play out what they're saying and yeah, you go, God, I've heard this before. I, get, I know what yeah. you're going to say next. You're, just, it's, you're trying to mind read them, right? Yeah. So it's like, those are the four most common things we do. Yeah. And that's, yeah. none of that is listening. <laughs> yeah. None All of right. it is listening. So I think, I think it's, it's one of the things that I think in leadership you've got to get better at too, mm-hmm. is you've got to learn how to empathically listen and, and genuinely be curious about what the person's saying. Don't mind read. Don't one up. Don't, don't do any of that. Yeah. Well, it's two way, right? Like there's one where you're providing, call it direction and communicating the vision or the strategy or what you want. And then it's also yeah. seeing how that then feeds in with the other side, you know, getting that feedback. And I think that's a really easy trap as a leader. You outline the vision, you've got it pretty set in stone. And a lot of the time, you know, leaders will be like, Hey, now let's open this up for feedback, but it's not really opening it up for feedback. It's more just seeing, does everyone agree? And (laughs) um, you can just get a few things off your chest, but in all likelihood, it's probably not really going to be implemented anyway. So I think it, it depends on, yeah, what you want and what your outcome is. But yeah, it's a really interesting space, right? Mm. It's one of these things where very hard to master. Very few people, I think, do master it. It's continuous evolution, but. What, what I'd say is, what I'd say, it's, it's, it's really cool. It, it's like how I look at all education. I don't look at anything as being the one thing that you should do. Mm. Uh, I remember my, my stu- one of my students asked me, I have been, you know, I've, mm. I've done your course now. Is that all? Should I? And, and then I actually found myself recommending a few of my competitors as well. Because what I find is that I look at content, whether it's leadership, communication, whatever it is you want to learn, I look at it as a gym. And in a gym, there's a treadmill, there's a freaking, you know, there's a bench press, there's everything. So is the treadmill better or is the bike better? They're both cardio. And to me, the answer is both. You should do a little, little bit of running, but too much running is bad for your knees. Bike is better for your knees, but you should do a bit of both. So it's, it's like with this book, this book is about leadership. It's, it's not the only leadership book you should read. I think you should read many types of leadership books because there are many different stories that lead to different lessons and then they apply them in different ways. Mm-hmm. But if you feel like you're a leader that needs a little bit more of, bit more oomph behind you, you know, you've got to be a bit of a stronger, more 
commanding leader, then I find that this book is fantastic because it gives you that motivation of what a really confident but not cocky leader looks like. You know, it gives you that that courageous but again not foolhardy kind of leader. Mm-hmm. So if you need a little bit more of that that courage and that kind of strong leadership, then this is a fantastic book to get your hands on mm-hmm. because the stories will motivate the crap out of you. And it's yeah. and it's the extremes of the stories, right? It's life or death kind of stories, which which will give you maybe that inspiration <laughs> you need to to take things to the next level. I love that. And I think yeah. the the opposite to this style would be Brene Brown's. You know, like yeah. if you want a different voice and an angle to it, I'd be reading yeah. both nearly at the same time. So you get Jocko's big like army seal and then you get Brene's sort of friendly yeah. and open and vulnerable type of perspective. I think if you can get the combination of both of those, it might provide a more well-rounded perspective. Because they're, and also, I think at their core, they're both very similar. They're about openness and yeah. getting to the core of the issue to move mm. forward. They just provide different ways to do that. And just remember that when authors write books, they have to take that stance of this is the way to do it, right? And, and, and it's, it's okay. It's okay that that's their stance. I mean, that's why they wrote the book. That's why they're trying to be a thought leader in that space. But I think as a, a consumer of all this information, just understand that ultimately it's a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And it's really building that sensitivity to know when to use what, when to use the Bernay Brown approach, when to use the Jocko Willink approach. And, and it's, as leaders, again, we didn't get to it, but one of the topics in the book I think is really important is the ability to improvise and be adaptive. So ebb and flow through life, my friends. It's, it's not constant. It's ups and downs, and you've just got to adjust accordingly. Well said. Any final words from you, Ali? <laughs> I think you've, you've covered it nicely. Let's finish on that note, my friend. Beautiful. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of the Vin and Ali show. Make sure you do head over and rate our show if you have a moment. It does help more listeners find us. And other than that, we'll see you in the next podcast. Bye, everyone. Hi, hello, it's Vin. Thank you so much for listening to the Vin and Ali show. We've created something that we're really excited about and we want to share it with you. It's called Recalibrate. It's a 12-step process that helps you create more clarity and more alignment in your life. It's the exact approach that both Ali and I have been using to live happier lives and to achieve all of our wildest dreams in the last seven years. It's been crazy. Being one of our loyal listeners, we wanted to share a special something with you. Visit recalibrate.online forward slash Vin and Ali to access the course for 70% off. I hope you will check it out.